Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Hey, um, a really quick plugs up the top here. Uh, really excited about today's guest, Tom Ballard. I love his podcast, uh, Like I'm a Six-Year-Old. You should definitely check that out. And if you're in Melbourne for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, he's doing two shows, which he speaks about. In this podcast, I have seen one of them, and it is the best thing that I've ever seen him do. Uh, I think it is one of the best shows that I've seen someone who is 26 years old ever do, to be honest. I think it's an absolutely brilliant show, and he's only going to do amazing work in the future. But if you want to like uh, step in at a point where you can still say... I saw him before he was the biggest act in the entire world, then uh, this is your opportunity. It's not going to be too much longer before everybody else in the world knows how brilliant he is. So go and check him out. Uh, Two amazing shows at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, both worth really supporting. And we talk a lot about uh, at least uh, one of those shows uh, during this podcast. So again, I don't like to tell you too much up the front. Just listen to it. Uh, Make up your own mind. Thank you very much to everyone who's given such uh, positive feedback about the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Uh, That was the last philosophy that went up. Um, Osher was incredibly generous and incredibly open and talked about a lot of uh, really personal things and it's amazing to see how well that's connected with people so if you haven't checked that out yet uh, check that out uh, the Adam Zwa episode before that is also excellent uh, I highly recommend that I know this means that I've had uh, three white guys in a row uh, look it, hopefully my uh, aim to have more diversity on the podcast uh might not reflect be reflected every single second week, but will even out over a period of uh, episodes. And I have um, a couple of other great uh, female guests coming up uh, that I'm going to record during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Uh, so um, yes, anyway, I don't I don't need to linger on that, but I you know I just like to update people in case uh, people were saying, well, I thought you were having a now. Anyway, I'm begging on. You don't need to hear all this sort of shit. Hey, I'm doing my show, uh, Fire at Will. It starts tonight. It starts tonight in Melbourne at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Wednesday and Thursday this week. Uh, cheaper previews, even though I've been doing the show for three weeks. So there's a bargain night. Come on one of those two nights. Friday night is opening night. It's media night. So if you want to come and sit next to a reviewer and laugh really hard, so they think I have an excellent show. I, I think it is an excellent show. I think you'll enjoy the show. But um, <laughs> come on the Friday night. But I'm doing Wednesday through Sunday uh, for the four weeks of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, with the exception that Thursday, the April the 7th, I will be at the Sydney Opera House. One night only in Sydney. This is it. If you want to catch the show, you've got to catch it that night at the Sydney Opera House. April the 7th, first show, almost sold out. Second show, still tickets available. Come to the second show. It'll be fun. Second show is always fun on a night like that. Hometown, Sydney Opera House. It's going to be a big night. It'll be brilliant. It's always fun to do the concert hall at the Sydney Opera House. So uh, very excited about those shows. And then the first week of uh, May, I'll be in Perth. So buy some tickets to that. There you go. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, guys. Uh, if you like it, rate it on iTunes. It keeps it up the top of the charts and it means more people can find out about it, tweet about it, Facebook about it, do all those sort of things. It's a free podcast and I have no budget for publicity. So if you could do something, if you like it, that'd be cool. Um, okay, guys, I uh, hope you enjoyed the show and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I have a guest and is traditional on this podcast. Our guest, what is your name? Who are you? My name is Tom Ballard. Yep. I am a human being. Right. 
with tickets on sale. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, that's why, that's why Tom's here. No, no, you're the, I you're love the, you're it. The, you're the most honest guest we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> Everyone else is like, no, you just got to straight to the point, which is like, you know what? This podcast has a little listeners. Let's not look around, baby. Tom this has a show shit. on sale. Comedy festival. No. Um, <laughs> has anyone else said a human being? Has anyone else gone uh, with that? Look, I don't, I, I don't really listen. So. <laughs> not your cup of tea? No, I don't. I, I don't well, I don't remember. That's the worst We're just thing. getting ready to talk again. Shut the fuck up, Will. Let the guest talk. Sorry. Good to have that get in because <laughs> so, somebody by this point has already made that comment. So it's good it was actually the guest this time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love the way you talk on the show. It's great. It's a real conversation. Well, you know what? I'm here every week. So if you don't like me. <laughs> this is it, man. I've, you know, I've started this podcast and I'm just like. Any criticism, I'm like, go fuck yourself. It's right. free. <laughs> I don't have to be doing this. I, some people are like that's too long. I'm like, well, then just stop, stop. listening and stop move listening. On with your life, it's fine. Mate. Why do I have to cater my podcast <laughs> to the fact that you don't know how to use the pause button? <laughs> Fucking move on. Like it's like when people Google. Like people will sometimes go, "Hey, uh, here you coming to Perth? Where's the link to that show?" Yeah, and I'm like. It would have taken the exact same time <laughs> to ask Google that question now. and they have that available because you know what I'm going to have to do? Yeah. Go and Google that link and then paste <laughs> it in. That's what you could have just done. And this is why, and you know, you're, you're well aware of and you've talked about the, the, um, the upsides of podcasting so much on your podcast, but I mean, compared to working radio when often, even, you know, at somewhere like Triple J where, um, you know, I think people have a healthy respect for listeners. Every now and again, you were doing something, you're like, this is really talking down to the people who are listening to the show. You're really, like, if you would talk to like this, me talking to management here, you would feel patronized. Right. So podcasts, I just think it's it's just so much more like, you know, you're really honest and you can call people out on their bullshit. And, and that's so much more appealing to me as a relationship between a broadcaster and a listener because that's so much more what real friends do or what real conversation is. Like you you call people out on stuff you don't agree with and you're just not constantly like, you're awesome, keep rocking out. I, I agree with absolutely everything you're doing and saying and please keep listening. Uh, uh, you know, the thing that is interesting to me is that, and you would have found this, but much more so in commercial radio than it is in like, you know, the kind of government radio things, but this uh, need to have an opinion on everything yeah. and for the need to be... a hundred percent one way or the other right yeah. like i would say that 95 percent of my opinions on things are somewhere in the middle yeah, yeah and yet in those things they're like you hate the bachelor right and i'm like oh, i don't know I, some, I like it sometimes and then sometimes if there's something better on i don't yeah, like it yeah. and there was that one bit that i like I, I, I to be honest i'm not gonna waste i only have a few firm opinions yeah i'm not gonna waste one of them on the bachelor <laughs> <laughs> they're, a, they're a finite resource because you've got to stop caring after a while. Yeah, I think that's true. But also just, you know, a listener would call in and they'd say something stupid and I'd, I, I liked calling them on it or uh-huh. liked making fun of the person right. because it was all friendly. I thought it all come from a place of love. It's part of the show. Yeah. And then I listen to some commercial stations and people call in and... The, they, they may as well have not have because it's like, hi Heather, how are you going? Yeah, really good. You excited about this money? Yep. Hey, you won. Yay, thanks. Bye. It's like, what's the point? Like, I don't know anything about Heather. I don't know. I don't. She's she's a just a voice with nothing to her. You know, that's in because that Heather radio. works in the sales department of that radio <laughs> station, and she's not a real person. <laughs> they couldn't get a real caller for that. <laughs> so Heather from sales is making that call. Yeah. They don't want to know too much about Heather because no. she hasn't done a full backstory. <laughs> They haven't worked up a false identity oh, for Heather, unfortunately. You've she's ringing you from she's whatever. ringing you from whatever target demographic that they're not accessing. <laughs> Hi, I'm 18 to 34 and live in the western suburbs. 
And I love... What are you doing right now? Good. Make sure you fill out your ratings survey book, please. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where uh, when I was at at commercial radio and it was um, some of the most creative because we were very lucky in that we were the – it was a station that was having a lot of problems and we were the least problematic thing. Like if we had been like rating what we did against – like so Hamish and Andy were the big market leaders at the time and we were rating like half of what they rated. Uh, So if if you were purely viewing it through that prism, like we would have been the problem. But luckily everything else on the station was rating (laughs) – like a quarter of their competitors so we were actually the real success story yeah yeah we were like the dog that only shat in the house and not on the couch so (laughs) so we were we were left to our own devices pretty much and uh but the one thing they tell you like in commercial radio is always like don't challenge your listeners Mm. like you know i mean just ask them something that they immediately know the answer to don't ask them to be creative don't challenge them and we our desire was always the complete opposite of that like we would always try to think of something that was counterintuitive that and trust that they were interesting and the best example i always say is we used to do this thing that i came up with one day when i was jogging on bondi (laughs) beach and it, it was called the David Caruso quiz. And what we would do is we would get the opening scene from CSI Miami. Yeah. Now, if you've never seen that show, there'd always be some sort of grisly murder. Yeah. Like, you know, so the scenario would be like um, a guy has been uh, like, oh, yeah, okay. So there's a, a camera, you know, fl- small flying airplane, like with a little camera and it crashes into a guy's head. Yeah. And David Caruso would come over and he'd go, well, Frank. I guess he won't be. And then he'd put on his sunglasses, droning on. And then it'd be like, wow! Right. So good. So what we would do every week is we'd have that the sound effect queued up. Right. We'd play them the scenario yeah. up to the point where, like, and so we'd play the, the f- and then yeah. and then uh, they would ring in yeah. with whatever they thought the line was going to be. <laughs> and so people would do the voice and they'd always say, well, Frank. And yeah. then they would do their version. And we would have eight or nine or ten of them in a row all better than the one that was in the show. Totally, yeah, all yeah, hilarious. Yeah. But even if they're not hilarious, you've got the the wah yeah, and yeah, the thing yeah. around it. If it's and, shit, it's always better because it's like, yeah, you get that sweet payoff. Uh, we had better, like, you know, if you l- listen to like a Letterman Top 10, we were having a higher strike rate yeah. with Funny than oh, a Letterman fuck. Top 10 would from, from listeners, just yeah. from trusting that your listeners are at least, if not more intelligent than you. Yeah, one morning I remember uh, the the panel shut down at Triple J, uh, like you know, so we could only play CDs, we only play songs out of CDs, and the panel shut down, so we couldn't play any of our little stings or sweepers or any all the stuff that makes a radio show sound like a radio show. And so, and we did the classic, you know, ABC, what a shit heap, and everything's broken, and you know, where's all the money going, and you know, you would never hear this on commercial radio. And then we got listeners to call in and do our sound effects for us, so people to call in and do like a Tom and Alex, and it was a joy. It was so much creative fun. It was so real because it was in that moment and it was actually happening. And I just, I've loved, it made me laugh so much. And it was just, and then we used some of those later for like, for sweepers and IDs and stuff later on, you know, in the run. Um, and I remember, you know, and we did the sound check and we went in, the air check rather, which is where, you know, the your bosses sit you down and talk you through, listen back to something in the show and talk about what happened. And I remember us then going through that and they kind of stopping going, yeah, look, you kind of talk down the station a little bit much. That's not really kind of what we're going to do. And I just thought, nah, man, that was fucking great. That was breakfast radio. That was original. It was unlike anything else. It was the, the listeners were on our side. We were creating something together. Um, you and it was m- just you joyous. You, you know? may be too, like, that's genuine 
genuine listener engagement, by the way. Right. Like when they talk in those meetings all the time about engaging your listeners, yeah. you cannot do more engagement right. than inviting them in on to yes. help make the show. Yes. Like there used to be these like uh, daytime sort of movies that used to play when I was a kid. You're mm. probably a bit young for this, but right. they were the traditional things that you would see over and over and over again. They'd always have like Mickey Rooney and people like that as kids. <laughs> and there's always be a scene where like the woman would be like, you know, they had some big event they had to arrange in really short time. And then like, you know, somebody would be like, my dad's got a barn. And they'd be like, let's put on a show. And everybody <laughs> would like, you know, pitch in together to put on this show. Right. That's what that is. Yeah. That's inviting everybody into the world like yeah. one of the favorite things that we did like when when it, uh, it was announced we hadn't returned in the radio guide in the newspaper they said um you know they said something very nice about the show and they said they hope that um now that it's been announced they're not coming back that they won't now phone it in right and i just found that so <laughs> hilarious that uh, the next day we did a show where limo was on uh, bondo beach and i was in brisbane and we phoned the show in <laughs> so we hosted it on the phones we got all our guests into the studio oh. we got like people to ring in but we were literally on phones in different places phoning in the show and like people still talk to me about that I have people coming up to me going I remember that show where you just phoned the entire show in (laughs) but at Triple M like they turned Triple M off at Triple M that day because they thought we were giving them like the big finger and they got pissed off at it where I was like this is fun this is fun we we once did an entire thing on the radio uh, drying lettuce what? Like it was an entire hour because we'd had this argument one day because I love a letter, one of those lettuce dryers, you know, yeah. those ones you can get at home, those salad spinners. Yeah. And Lima was like, well, no, lettuce just dries. Yeah. And so we decided that we would like have a competition <laughs> to dry lettuce, but then we would get like three lettuce judges in. Yeah. So we had like a model from Australia's Next Top's model because we thought, who knows lettuce? Sure. Uh, we had a rabbit, a live rabbit Great. in the studio. I can't remember what the third one was, but there was three <laughs> things and like whichever one the rabbit's lettuce. But I remember it was one of my favorite moments on air, ever on air because we've just come back from a break and Limo's just gone, if you've just joined us, we're drying lettuce. <laughs> Now, that it should be noted that sometimes these ideas do not go well. We had like a risk. Alex and I had a risk game going on in the studio oh, yeah. for the odd year. Okay. And then halfway through the year, we're just like, this is fuck. We haven't got any good content out of this. Right. It's just sitting there in the studio. Guests come in and occasionally inquire about it with some vague level of interest. And we kind of go, oh, we thought it would be funny. Yeah. We're very wrong. It wasn't. It never, and we never played the game either. So. Uh, what, uh, let's, I mean, I, I, I want to get to a whole bunch of different things, but we were talking about the podcast and we've been talking about broadcasting. So let's just keep talking about this while we, while we are. What is the difference that you found, the main difference you found since you've like left like radio radio and like, you know, started your own podcast, which is brilliant, by the way. I know that I always tell you that. I, I enjoy it very much. It's Thank probably... You, it's, uh, I, I just, I enjoy the way, like the thing that I like the most about it is, some people say to me about this podcast, they're like, it's an echo chamber. And I was like, yeah, kind of. Like, it isn't really. Like, a lot of yeah. the people I have on have very different opinions to me. Religious people, people who comple- I completely disagree with. Yep. But I, I haven't got anyone on, like, a Lyle Shelton or somebody like that who I completely disagree with, who my yeah. you know, opinions are polar opposite to, and then ha- sat down with that person and had a conversation with them. So I want to talk to you about that first. Like, what... How is that? Like, how are you? Like, how old are you? Like, 11? How old are you now? Like, 24? Three years old. I'm a big boy. What? How old 26. are you now? 26 years old. And yep. how do you have the confidence to sit down with somebody that you disagree with and have a conversation? Like, the, I know that may sound like a weird question, but to me, I would find that overwhelming because they would say something. Like, when people say something, if it sounds right, like, at least for a couple of oh, minutes, right, I'm yes. like, 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and then it's only later that I'm going, hang on, that makes no sense at all. Yeah, right. And that's that's the thing, right? You can watch you can watch someone uh, on on a panel show or read an article or hear them on the radio or whatever and you can just you can you know if they are saying things that are antithetical to your whole world view and you're like that's fucking wrong fuck this asshole person because all you have of that person is what's what what, what you're right. getting there their opinion and that's what you associate with them you think they are the fucking worst in the world if you sit down with someone and you have a conversation with them, and you, you know, before I sat down with Lyle Shelton from the Australian Christian Lobby, we went and got a coffee. I bought him a coffee beforehand, right. and we were chatting about the weather and stuff, and then he sat down, and we, he came to my hotel room in Canberra, and we were sort of joking about how weird this was and stuff, and there was very real human moments together like that. And then, you know, there were points in the podcast where we got to some really tense bits, and where I found myself getting very angry and worked up by what he was saying, but... You know, someone is sitting there in front of you and they're kind of, they're telling you what they think and they're doing that in good faith and they've just agreed to come on your show. So um, I find that a very, very you know, fascinating experience. And, and as much as I've loved talking to a lot of people who I think I would largely agree with, you know, a whole bunch of things and, and, and people who I really admire for what they do and how they say it, talking to people like Peter Reith or Tim Wilson or Lyle Shelton, you know, is just this fascinating insight into these people who just just come at the world, just see the world in a completely different way to me. And I think they're wrong. <laughs> but I guess you just get more more empathy and insight into how they, they come to things. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty big believer that like people have to actively engage in their own opinions. Like, yeah. just because you don't correct something or you let... Like, I mean, I often think that you can just let somebody say something. With Gruen, I, I have to encounter this a lot, where people are like, this person said that thing that's so wrong. Why didn't you correct them or slap them down? I yeah. said, well, you knew it was wrong, right, when you're watching? Yeah. And you decided that in your head? Right. They said it. Yeah. Like, sometimes you let people say what they say. Yes. And then people can make up their mo- own minds about how they feel about that. Yeah. I don't need to spoon, spoon f- feed you as an audience. But I did see some people who, uh, you know, that I like and that I follow on Twitter and stuff felt like, particularly in the Lyle Shelton interview that you didn't cor- you know that you didn't correct enough or yeah. that you didn't like yeah. you know that you gave him an opportunity to you know express his yeah. you know, point too much did you take on board any of that feedback or was that something that you that you know, I mean what, what were your thoughts on that yeah I, I mean I mean some people disagreed having him on the show at all yeah. so some people like this guy should not have a platform he has toxic poisonous ideas and you shouldn't even be giving him more more uh, or more attention at all uh, I have some sympathy for that point of view, particularly when I see like Sunrise interviewing Pauline Hansen about the Syrian refugee uh, situation, and she says these awful things about uh, Muslims and about how you know no Australians want Muslim refugees, and she just doesn't know anything about it. Clearly, I find I think there is a real responsibility on those broadcasters to really seriously question: Are we doing this for a bit of pop and sizzle? And because is is Pauline available because she's running for election again and wants to stay relevant and stay in the headlines, or is this is there genuine public interest here? But. Let me just uh, pause pause on the Pauline thing because, weirdly enough, in my show, I have a whole piece about how I have the opposite take on that. And it may be a different thing about age and time because 20 years ago when I started doing comedy, Pauline Hanson had just come out with One Nation and stuff. In fact, my first comedy festival show had a whole, uh, you know, Pauline Hanson poem to I do not like green eggs and ham. That was what I was doing back then, guys. Classic hits from Diet Life. Uh (laughs) Going all the way back. (laughs) But... um, uh, 
she, she was saying the exact same things back then about Asians that yes. she's now saying about Muslims. And yes. I make the point in the show that if you let racism speak out loud and if you examine it through an historical context, the best example of how stupid racism is yeah. is Pauline Hanson. Yes. Because she's saying the same shit yeah. about Muslims now that yeah. she was saying about Asians 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah. And you're like, hey, what about the Asians? And she's like, I enjoy this sushi. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, she fucking went back this Sunday, actually. I'm going to her old fish and chip shop, oh, yeah. which is now run by uh, a woman who was a, a refugee from Vietnam, came to Australia by boat. It's now run by her. And Pauline had the gall to do a media op with her. Like, she, you can look it up. Uh, she went back to the same fish and chip shop, and she's there cooking the chips, and they're getting along like great old pals. Just no sense of the irony of her situation whatsoever. And yeah, has totally just moved on to the, the new group of, of Muslims and, you know, brown people. Right. Because apparently we're not, you know, we're not fussed about Asian immigration anymore. Yeah. You, you've, if, you're, if you're some other dispossessed group, you've really got to watch your back. Right. Because yes. you know Pauline's going to be on to you in 10 or 15 years. Who's it going to be next? It's yeah. <laughs> when she suddenly discovers she loves kebabs <laughs> and hummus, she'll be suddenly like, oh no, hang on. Hang on. Inuits. Hang on. Right. <laughs> Fuck these guys. Coming over here with their ice. <laughs> But then, but then, see, Pauline's interesting to me because, to me, at this point, her only power is through media appearances. Right now, True. Lyle and the ACL have real influence in Canberra, and we've seen that, you know, yeah. late with the Safe Schools Coalition, with you know, they're basically the leading party in the No Movement on, on marriage equality. Right, and they do a lot of it closed behind the doors, and they sort of organise extremely well. They flood the certain MPs with a whole bunch of letters, and people like George Christensen, and you know the people on the more conservative religious right of the Liberal Party are really Cory Bernardi and Erica Betts. They're really listening to the ACL. And the thing I respect about Lyle Shelton or Jim Wallace, the former uh, managing director, is that they rock they do rock up. And I do think there's quite a few more sort of insidious people who just who don't, who just lobby in Gambry. You would never know their names or anything, but they're just sort of prosecuting these ideas behind closed doors. Whereas, you know, Lyle, you know, to his credit, came on my podcast, goes on Q and A to to talk about this stuff and and uh, and defends it. Um, now there is some bits in the chat where he'll just quote a study that I haven't read. Right. That I can't do anything in that moment to correct him on. I mean, right. I can point out the fact that he can cite one study, and I can cite the opinion of a range of different well-respected organisations that queer people are just as capable of parenting kids as as straight people are. And he can sort of say, "Nah," and we move on. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> there's no impasse at that point. It's not. Because yeah. if, if somebody's not willing to come at it with the same uh, objective scale on how we judge something, sure. it's like your Andrew Bolt climate change stuff. Right. He's got one graph that yes. he thinks disproves it, yes. and he's going to stick to that graph, <laughs> even though the graph. guy who came up with the graph yeah. has said that he's reading the graph wrong. Yeah, yeah. But Andrew Bolt's like, what would that guy who made the graph know about the graph? Tell me how to read my graph. Right, exactly. I my graphs from my graphs. But that's the thing about like um, expertise in science. I was actually just having a conversation about this with a, a radio interviewer, but this idea of, you know, that we live in this age of easy, like we've never had a better access to information. Yeah. But the problem is that we don't necessarily have the tools to understand how we, yeah. you know, comprehend and use that information. You can read one study, but if you if you don't have, it's like the original, you know, Andrew Wakefield autism, you know, anti-vaccine autism yep. study that was on 12 
12 kids. Yeah. Like immediately that's not enough. Yeah. Since then, there has been more than 12 studies, yep. some of them with millions of kids that yep. have completely disproved the original thing that was not true. Right. But, but, you know, you can find those things. And if you don't have that kind of, if we haven't been taught to say, well, don't trust this thing that's just 12 people or sure. read beyond the headline they put in the newspaper about this science discovery because they always pick the most sexy out there yeah. angle on a science story, you yeah. know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, yes. And that's and the, the fascinating thing that sort of came up in the podcast with Lyle is that though they are the Australian Christian lobby, you will not find a lot of Christ or Jesus in their arguments. In no. particular, when they're weighing into this debate, they are citing studies. They are talking about biology. They're talking about you know social sciences and psychology. And I think they're doing that in a very dodgy way. Right. But to me, that's really interesting because I think, okay, well, if you just want to talk about studies, let's imagine a world where the definitive study has been released and endorsed by every university in the world you are still not going to come around on this issue because you it's it comes down to your faith right, right. you you believe that god made men and women and that's it and you also believe that homosexuality is a sin right. that two people in a bedroom making love to one another not hurting anyone in the entire world is somehow doing the creator of the universe some wrong right so which is we which reach is, this kind of impasse, which is the know? thing. Yeah. So, like, I mean, the, the the greatest thing about faith, but also the the weirdest thing when it comes to things like this is, yeah, they're things that you can't examine right. because if you can't inherently understand how illogical that is, yeah, then how can you? Like, pick it apart at all. Like, I mean, the idea that if there is a creator, why would they create all these people why, who want to do this? Like, what's that? the point of this, like, weird prank that he's played on 10% of the population? Yeah. To, like, I mean, there's a myriad of, like, ways that if you are going to look at something logically that that wouldn't make sense at all. Sure. So it is interesting what you say, that they bring some sort of logic or science into the process at all because yeah. surely that's almost the enemy of any of their arguments at the end of the day. You think I mean it's you you're not you're gonna lose that you're gonna lose that right. game and and this is why and you know maybe maybe we'll get to this further about religion and stuff, but it's like to me it's remarkable how as science has progressed, God's ways have become more and more mysterious. You know, right. they just keep winding back, keep pushing back constantly and and religions hold on the explanation as to how things work has just been rolled back so much, but religious people today in 2016 think, no, no, this this is it. We've got, we've still got this. Right. We still know these things about <laughs> the world and about the way things work. So don't worry, guys. We'll hang on to this. What's that? Oh fuck! There are gravitational waves. Oh well, okay. Well, not that one, but you know, generally, nah. God made the waves. You right. See. He wanted the waves to happen. Yeah. And he started evolution. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> all right. Well, let's um, ask what your philosophy is and then we can like, you know, ramble all over the place. But we should get to it and then we can see if it informs the other things we're going to talk about. Do you have one? Um, like often on this podcast, I have people on who are older than you. Right. Uh, so I don't know what I would have said at your age <laughs> and whether it would be extremely different to what I would think now. But I'm interested Drugs and to pussy, hear it. baby. Yeah. <laughs> wow. One of those is a real shock. <laughs> You know me, slave to the poon. Uh, <laughs> no, well, I mean, I, you know, listening to to your show, which I uh, love very much indeed, uh, it, it becomes clear that no one has um, one philosophy, right. and people have quite a few. And I would also, I would say, maybe one of my philosophies is don't just have one philosophy, because if you are, if you just have one idea, if I knew someone who had just had one maxim and one idea to live their entire life by. I would be worried that person would be either quite boring or quite dangerous as well. Uh, I 
that's a really smart thing to say, I think. And it is absolutely the thing that I, A, suspected when I went into this project, but sure. B, have certainly had reinforced with me. And that was part of the reason I wanted to do it in the first place was I've been lucky enough to meet a whole bunch of successful people. You know, being in media and stuff, you interview people and yeah. you, like, you see people you admire and stuff and you realise that – all of them are driven by different things and have different approaches and there is no one size fits all. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's even hard when people ask you for advice because all I can give an advice is, here's what I think yes. would I do? This is basically what I guess I'd do. Yes. If that in any way applies to sure, you. I can't be sure, but this is yeah, right. My gut instinct is that this, if I were in this situation, maybe I'd do this yeah. and I barely can lock that in. Right. So if you can find any... <laughs> Help in that, then that's absolutely fine. You're but, welcome. Yeah. Um, that idea of having many philosophies and picking mm. the eyes out of things and finding what is what is right for you, yeah. you know, in the words of different strokes, you know, what well, might be right, right for you, you may not, not be right, right for some. some. Take a drink, philosophy listeners. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have called it what you're talking about, Will. I really should have. Um, but I... That's an interesting thing. So, where do you look for in your life for those sort of things? Like, that's a that's a good starting point. Like, what 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 have been influential to you? You know, where are you picking bits and pieces out of to to make up what you think? Well, man, I mean, I, I I've always been fascinated by philosophy itself. So, in year twelve, I sort of did I did a. I did a first year uni course in philosophy in the Monash sort of philosophy thing, this sort of extension program uh-huh. in year 12, which I, I really loved. And that was like time travel and, and moral philosophy, uh, abortion stuff like, you know, um, yeah, right to life stuff and uh, Peter Singer's work, even, you know, on his sort of um, uh, the stuff that makes you cringe a little bit talking about, you know, um, infanticide, you know, killing some the children right. even after they've come out, like some really interesting stuff and animal um, philosophy, animal ethics and the idea that we might treat um, apes as persons. They might have personhood because they have feelings and memories and can feel love and be scared and have, you know, think about themselves over a period of time. So I loved all that stuff. I really did. Um and I, I think maybe just after I finished high school too, I started reading a bit more Richard Dawkins, a bit more New Atheist kind of things and watching debates on YouTube between Sam Harris and, and various religious leaders. I, I just I fucking loved it. And I got so... I, got, I became the douchey atheist right. that people probably met at some point. Went pretty hard. I hope I've scaled it back a little bit since. But... Um, I mean, that, that, that seems to be a period that anyone who... Because I always said it's funny for me because like i went from wanting to be a priest when i was a kid Mm. to like being about 12 or 13 and just one day just being very aware of the fact that there was no god yeah and it made absolutely no sense but never in a sort of like you know we were never religious enough or like you know dad's never been religious mum took us to church maybe still is a bit religious but nana was like religious but it wasn't like one of a disgrace to the family or anything like that (laughs) i just woke up one day and i was like all right yeah okay the like same. I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah. But then when I was a comedian, there was probably a period around my like mid twenties. Yeah. Where you know, like, Hello. I was like, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> it's me from your past. Yeah. yeah. Where, you, where you're suddenly like, ah, oh, if you believe in God, you're an idiot, and yeah. then suddenly you're like, oh, shut up, shut up. Like you know, I mean, so where do you balance that now? Where are you at yeah. in that? See, that's interesting because I know, and I'm a big fan of your your bit where you talk about you know, I don't know if there's a God, but I didn't understand the end of Donnie Darko. Yeah. Like you know, great point and. And I think that's that's true. I do think there's a mischaracterization of, of, of atheists. I think that, or atheism, at least the atheism that I subscribe to or interests me or I think is the way forward, which is, you know, a, an, an acknowledgement of your ignorance. And this is what I was, Lyle was saying was sort of, you know, oh, it's a bit, 
isn't it a bit arrogant to think that you you have all the answers or that you know you're the top of the food like there's nothing bigger than you as a human being if you don't believe there's that god there then you think that you know this end result of human of human right. evolution is like is the shit and i'm like no no it's it's the most humbling thing in the world i think to realize that there is no purpose or no afterlife as far as we can tell uh and that we are just the tiniest little fucking nothing in the huge scheme of things I think it's more arrogant to suggest that there is a giant being watching over you who has a plan for your life, right. who cares where you put your we're dick. We're special. Yeah, that we're special. Yeah, that we and were that- created in some magic way and right. that we have to obey this like completely insecure yes. figurehead and it's obey very- these rules that right. have never really been spelled out, but some old guys seem to really think we're important. Re- really and- locked in. Yeah, he, and hasn't, that- he hasn't taken the effort to clarify at any point. He right. hasn't come down now to say, hey guys, sorry about all the confusion, but here's the actual Ten Commandments. If we just stick to these, that'd be great right like that would be really helpful i think yeah i feel like i misprioritized yeah, considering yeah. some of the problems <laughs> yeah. that have later on ended up happening uh, on the earth i'm yeah. gonna put don't fuck kids right up near yeah. the top on this version sorry i apologize so that i've now done your bit no that's all right that's all right that's that's a, an affirmation that there's something in there man i enjoy doing that bit actually really don't fuck yeah what was it don't fuck kids what else? Like I know what 10 else is a... did you put back in there? <laughs> I know 10 is a nice round number, but that does seem to be the one that's tripping up a lot of people. I think, right. Anyway. Yeah. Fun. Yes. You can take one out. You don't need to get 11. I yes. reckon you oh, could take could out like... False idol. Yeah. Covet- coveting, coveting, the, the coveting the ass. You know, mm. I think you could cover off some bigger ones. Mix it up, dude. Yeah. Don't bomb other countries just because they believe in a different me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be helpful. <laughs> you just know. telling you, Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. Up. Um, so, so, did you have yeah. religion in your life at any stage? Were you? Did you go to a religious school? Was there like what about your parents, grandparents, something? Was there like any pressure on you at any stage to kind of have some religious upbringing? There wasn't at all. No, I my you know grandparents were by the nature of yeah. being their generation. They they right. they were and they go to church, but it was never never a serious thing. I loved Christmas. I still love Christmas as right. a time to come together and see people and, I love Christmas. and eat food and, and get a bit drunk. Man, it's seriously, I'd happily have a religious holiday for every religion. Like, lock them all in the calendar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll have them all. Kwanzaa, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Vishnu's birthday? Sure. <laughs> I'll have a day off for each arm. I'm happy. I'm in. <laughs> That's the dream. Um, uh, I remember, and I was just, I went to uh, government schools the whole way through, which is, you know, supposed to be secular. I still remember having religious education and having a pastor come into our school and sing a song called God is Good All the Time. Those are all the lyrics. Repeat. Like, really freaky, brainwashy kind of stuff that I that we had to get a note to get out of. I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right. I remember being angry about that. I mean, um, also the other thing about it is, like, I mean, if God is good all the time, that's not even an achievement. Yeah. Because like, very, being good by the very nature of it means that there has to be some capacity for you to have a choice to do bad. Yeah. And if you're just good all the time, you're not even really making any effort to be good. You're just good, <laughs> right? Right. If he's... Well, yes. But also... But if he's God and he's sometimes bad, he's not even fucking trying. Like, he's God. So why would you be... Anyway. Yeah. I mean, he's, he works in mysterious ways. That's that's the truth. That's what you've got to remember. When you can't answer questions, Tom, yeah, mysterious, mysterious ways. Mm. Just, that's, your, that's your cover all for anything else, mysterious <laughs> ways. It's yep. a little fine print at the end, mysterious ways. Mysterious ways. <laughs> <laughs> this, this ad brought to you by God yeah. works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Written and authorized by the Holy Spirit on behalf of God and Jesus Christ. Uh, mysterious ways. That's a sketch. <laughs> sketch it. 
Someone draw that, please. Get open slather back on air. Yeah. We'll, we'll get this on. <laughs> it's time. So, um, okay. So, you did, had no religious upbringing. No, and it didn't really affect me directly. And, yep. you know, and maybe there's maybe that um, speaks to a bit of the uh, the hot air inflating my, my passionate atheism. But then when you start thinking about it and when I realized I was gay and you start, you know, sort of you're sort of inherently politicized by the fact that you're a queer person that puts you at odds with a lot of institutions and the way that society set up and you start looking at just how fucking homophobic um, a lot of... and how how much blood has been spilt and how much persecution has been enacted towards um, queer people over centuries and thousands of years just because of they think that it's... because it's different and people fear what they don't understand, right? Then that makes me very, very suspicious and um, and makes me angry towards those kind of institutions. Okay, and the, hypocr- so- the hypocrisy inflating the whole thing. I, I just find... You know, the same organisation that shelters and covers up pedophiles telling me how to live my life. I'm like, no, no, I don't think so. Thank you. So um, it's interesting when you talk about the politics of, um, you know, uh, queer, like of queer politics. Yep. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm even a bit conscious about using that word as like a straight person of, you know, of LGBTIQ politics. But I've heard you use queer politics, but you're like, you know, anyway, like... <laughs> I think people understand that I'm on the it's right. It's all right. It's I'm, okay. You know, <laughs> I'm trying my best, guys. Yeah, I think we've won but, that one back. Yeah. Because I don't think even homophobes now no. say queer. Hey, queer. Yeah. It'd be weird. It'd be charming. It'd make you giggle a little bit. You couldn't really be truly intimidated right. by somebody calling you a queer. Yeah, it's sort of like there are other terms that... It's like Reese Nicholson, the fantastic comedian, says he was called a poofter once. He's like, wow, you've been bigoted for ages. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, that's old school. <laughs> that is old school homophobia. It's <laughs> very cool. Um, so uh, I, I've been watching a little bit of um, uh, I Am Kate. Do you know what that show oh, is? Yes, yeah. I it's the it. uh, Caitlyn Jenner show. And yep. uh, I did not think it would be anything that I would be interested in. I've, I've never been interested in the Kardashians or anything like that. Yep. Uh, but I am very interested in like uh, trans. I, I feel like transgender politics and, you know, uh, transgender issues are things that I haven't really been across to the same way as I would be, uh, you know, like, you know, what I would consider like, you know, traditionally like gay rights. As someone who's like, Thought traditional gay rights. Well, to think that (laughs) in the way that I traditionally framed that, which was to be talking about men who wanted to be with men and women who wanted to be with women, sure, and that in itself, as you like know, and as as I have come to realize over the years, is very an oversimplification of like the myriad of different you know things that are within that. Yeah, Um, and. I'm not particularly interested in Caitlyn Jenner in any way, but they, she's doing this thing where she's on a bus trip. They've like got this bus mm. and she's filled it with like, I think there's about eight uh, transgender people on the bus. Mm. And some of them are like, you know, uh, women who in like the 60s and 70s were like, you know, these political, you yes. know, forces for like, you know, transgender rights and went through the worst of it all yeah. and have complete disagreements with, you know, Caitlyn Jenner on issues and these sort of things. Yeah. And even like you've kind of got on the bus their version of like a, a Malcolm X and a uh, Martin Luther King, you know, right. someone who's been kind of really confrontational about the fight and somebody who, like, so they had a big debate the other night about the word tranny. One right. really likes the word tranny because, yeah. you know, we've called a tranny and like reclaimed it as like, you know, I want it. Whereas the other one's like, we shouldn't use that word. That's, yeah. a, you know, a word that is. And so it's been to me, like, it, I, I love that bit. Yeah. But the interesting thing is because Caitlyn Jenner transitioned so late in life. Yeah. 
her politics haven't transitioned. Yes. Right? So the other night she was doing this big rant on the bus about like, you know, how the Democrats will destroy America and yeah. how Ted Cruz and all this sort she of stuff. Ted Cruz, yeah. And it's one of those things where it was really interesting because everyone else on the bus can't can't ever support that side of politics because they've struggled so much through times when that side has been so vicious and so anti mm. I mean, anyway, I know it seems like a really weird, but it was absolutely fascinating. And I really found it like as an insight into a real history because, you know, they're they're explaining to her because she's new to this world in a lot of ways. You know, they're explaining the history of the struggle. So I found it a very, anyway, I found it actually, anyway, it ended up being one of those things where I'm like, I think we all are, Kate. This is... We're all Kate, man. Oh, man. I think I am Kate. It's fascinating. Yeah, the Mardi Gras after party on the dance floor, I saw a friend and I met his boyfriend. His boyfriend is from Ohio and has just finished, just voted for Trump. He's a gay, he's gay Christian pro-life guy who's just voted for Trump. Right. And you also, you also think that, you know, the, the, the goal of, of the queer rights struggle is for gay people to be whatever they want to be, Correct. right? And, the, and there's, there's diversity, a huge amount of diversity, as you can see, within the queer community. Watch Mardi Gras, there's a million different people coming, things from all over the place. And yeah, if gay people want to be conservative, they can be conservative. And you, uh, you, and want, you, want, you want people in any, in any um, area of life to be able to come out and be who they are. But I feel or at least I've experienced just the very act of being gay yet yeah, puts you odds, throws you into this sort of immediate opposition to things that you're told in this heteronormative society and this cisgendered society and this sort of gender binary society about how things should work. So to me, you're just intrinsically have to like push back against that. And so, and that's how you get things like the queer t- critique of gay marriage. So, Queer people are saying we shouldn't even be wanting access to the institution of marriage because the history of gay rights is is calling out outdated anachronistic bullshit and say we don't need that we don't we don't need your validation straight people we don't need to be led into your institution of how you recognize relationships because we're all about fucking shit up right but I, I still think it's like I mean and again it's up to everybody to be able to make their own choices in that but it'd yeah. be nice if everyone was just able to make their own choices sure. in that yes I agree. you know it would yes. be able you I it still means that gay people can go marriage is outdated and mm. we would never get married mm. but there shouldn't be a law that says that they can't sure <laughs> that, yes, that seems like a pretty simple difference to me but it's interesting because I was uh, being interviewed uh, about my show and I was talking about some of the topics and the journalist it was from the Herald Sun but the journalist said to me oh sounds very left-wing and I said like you know if I'm talking about marriage equality on most surveys like the the Australian public is way ahead of the Australian politicians like on some surveys up to 70% of the Australian public already believe that there should be marriage equality in this country that's not a left-wing issue. No. Like, if that was a left-wing issue, Bill Shorten would win the next election by 30 points. Yeah. Like, you know, because you know, it makes no sense. It's yeah. not a left-wing issue. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. And it, it would be great to get to a point where you're absolutely right, where being gay mm. might not be anywhere near your top priorities of things to vote about because sure. both sides equally represent, you know, right. gay people as part of the... But it seems it still seems very weird when... Yeah, we've got a co- lot of prominent... I mean, Tim Wilson, you had on the podcast. Yeah. You know, he's certainly from a different side of politics, you yeah. know. I mean, and there's some other prominent, like really conservative homosexual, you know, yeah. commentators in Australia. So yeah. it's always, I mean, it's interesting to me. I do find that where I'm like, oh, it's interesting that. Yeah, like, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, but I guess it's good. 
It's good. Well, there's a whole log cabin, you know, log cabin Republicans in the states. There's a great doco about them actually, which is all these gay Republicans, and it's sort of following them around 2004 when George W. Bush is president, going for re-election, and it's basically, you know, campaigning on the Defense of Marriage Act, and and they're kind of like, oh, we don't agree with that, but we still think that he's the best thing for the country, so I guess we'll sort of begrudgingly endorse him, and that sort of like, you know, was a big controversy. I mean, a bunch of gay men being pro-Bush seems really <laughs> against what they were. Shut it down. Good night, everyone. We're done. Thank you. Anyway, that's podcasting done. (laughs) (laughs) And you've got to the end of podcasting, guys. Congratulations. Uh, Go down to your local 7-Eleven. You can choose anything under $5 (laughs) off the shelf as a prize. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> um, okay, so we, I've, I don't think I've ever like talked to you about like uh, this. Uh, if I have, I apologize. But um, how how early did you, were you aware that you were gay? Because you feel like to me, it, like uh, the thing that I my sense of you from the minute that I knew you, which was you were pretty young, mm. was I'd never met somebody who seemed so comfortable with the fact that they were gay so young like normally when i met people your age who were gay in my experience they were still going through a period of like almost trying gay on right you know like i don't know if you see this and maybe this is a weird thing to say but it'd be like they're doing like what they think gay is rather than just being themselves who is gay and i totally get that as well you know maybe you move to the city suddenly it's like well oxford street's here and this is what i believe that gay people do so i'm just gonna go and do the gay people thing yeah yeah but you seem to wear it very like you'd been wearing it for a long time. It, can you talk me through some of that and what that was like? And correct me if I'm completely like wrong no, about no. that. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Um, uh, I think uh, I sort of really got an inkling, came out to myself around fourteen, fifteen, mm-hmm. um, and that was not ideal. <laughs> for me at that time, I was like, I don't, I don't want this. this you didn't want it. I, want. I didn't want like it. A, yeah, I thought okay. I was waiting for the right girl. I knew I wanted... I mean, I think it was part of, like, things were lining up. So, it was like, I didn't do sport. I liked theatre. I want to be an actor. Um, I was quite sensitive. Um, and, yeah, didn't really have any... Well, actually got along quite well with girls, but never... No no romantic right. sort of fling. I was a bit chubby as a kid, too, so I was sort of insecure about my body. So, there was all this kind of, like, yeah, this is not... I, I don't want to be another gay actor. This is not what I want. I'm, I'm supposed to be in control of things. I, I was used to sort of doing well at school and being in charge of stuff and getting stuff done. Yep. So, this was kind of sort of a thing that was out of my control. Um, so, yeah, there was coming out to myself about, yeah, year 10 and and not really liking that at all and hanging on to that for about two years, I think. Okay. So, when yeah. you say hanging on to it, not telling anyone? Not telling anyone. Anyone? No, but then slowly- not doing anything. Did you? What were you doing? Like in your own world? Yeah. Were you then kind Masturbating of masturbating furiously? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're a 15 year old kid. Like, it does not matter what you're attracted to. You can be attracted to blocks of wood. You're, you're masturbating furiously. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch Lukewarm Sex? Did you watch the first episode? Oh my god, oh, Tom! It was so funny. Brilliant. Him, him talking about coming to his mum the first to, time he masturbated to his because pa- he thought he'd hurt he himself. Thought he'd hurt him. <laughs> but like amazing it was it was one of those tv shows where it was everything that you could have hoped it would be totally i mean i i think luke is a an absolutely brilliantly funny performer yeah but they have managed to pick the exact right thing yep. to showcase what he does very well yeah 
and then they've executed the thing around it yeah. really well. Brilliantly, yeah. As well. I just, I was, like, I thought it was fantastic. Really, yeah. really fantastic piece of television. And yeah. in that world of, that I know that you're interested in, which mm. is this world of, like, you know, being entertaining, but also being, you know, like, informative or adding some sort of extra value to it. It right. had, it ticked both those boxes. They totally. didn't just play the scenarios for laughs, yeah. even though some of them were hilariously yes. awkward. Yeah. But you did always feel like there was a point to it or yeah. that you were going to learn something or that there, yeah, there was going to be some sort of level of insight in that. And it was, it's kind of amazing because Luke is, like, 33. Right. But he is... I think most people at at fourteen fifteen, he's just sort of that that period for him, as far as I can tell, sort of just extended a lot a lot further in terms of being covered. And we all still have insecurities about his sexuality, but really, he is like a fifteen year old, right. <laughs> fourteen fifteen year old guy who's just like freaking out about everything about touch and and his body and and being insecure about whether he knows anything about sex or how it's going to happen. I mean, and it's whether the, he's a weirdo. You know what the thing is? It's the greatest TV idea of all time because basically what he's going to do is not only uh, get really good at sex, yes. but he's going to have had a TV show that's really popular so heaps of people will want to do sex with him. do sex with him. Like literally, he's going to do nothing but do sex you from now on. Because if he had like a TV, you know, you yeah. want, I mean, he's the guy from the show. Right. We definitely got to have a crack at that, right? <laughs> he's going to know what to do. Yeah. He's been massaging his perineum. He, right. knows, he knows what What's going yeah, on? he's got months of pre-production before this <laughs> night, so let's go and test some of those things out. He may never make television again. He might be just too too busy doing sex. He's like me, slave to the pussy, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so I mean, it's it's. I think it's researching furiously about the gay world. Yeah. So you know, I was so bl- blessed with the that? internet, yeah, you know, right. and then slowly, <laughs> and this is you know, because in Warnable, on, yeah, that's where you were, right? Warnable, Country Victoria, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't. Is there is there a gay community in Warrnambool? Is there like a? Well, not really. So this is, the, and then I sort of slowly start reaching out to the other gay-ish kids or the kids who seem gay. Uh-huh. There was one guy I knew who I'd done some musicals with, and surprisingly, not all the men who did musicals were gay. But uh, there was a guy there who was clearly very gay and sort of owned it and liked fashion and did all that. And he would go on to become my first boyfriend because we were two gays right. in the village. That was going to happen. May as well. But I thought, yeah, may as well. <laughs> See what you can do. Light it up. Uh, I mean, you know, Tom Hanks might have other had other friends than a volleyball if they were available, but sometimes you just got to make do with what you... He was my Wilson. Right. Uh, and then I joined like an anti-homophobia group. This is before coming out. Uh-huh. So I think my parents were oh, okay. like, all right, well, we'll wait for this to... <laughs> To all sort of transpire, um, yeah. But so, do you think? When do you think they knew, or have they told you since? When they had their suspicions, or well, the classic, and this is was part of my my act when I talked about coming out. But I came out, and my parents gave me a hug, and they said, "Tom, we love you, and that's fine, and we love you no matter what." And then Mum went back to her room and brought back a book that she'd purchased called "My Child Is Gay." <laughs> so. You know, that's <laughs> that's not casual reading. That's not something that you get at the airport to cover you. That's like, all right, I've got a faggot on my hands. How much is this? Fifteen ninety nine. Sure, let's go. I'll uh, I'll do some homework. And, how and that w- is so my parents, by the way. How were they? Like, did you feel like it was like... Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, really great. I mean, awkward. My parents of are course. awkward. I'm awkward around my parents. I love them. We know we love each other. We were never a particularly emotional family. We're quite sarcastic and cynical, I think, but we love each other. And um, they, you know, they were great. I think, yeah, they clearly mentally prepared themselves for it to happen. I think, and then just the slow process of sort of 
you know, and you get this a lot if you come out. Some people are like, oh, you know, I'm fine with it, but I'm just worried about, you know, grandma. I'm worried about auntie and uncle. I'm worried about these other people knowing, and so we don't want to worry about it too much. Um, yeah, and but you know, at this point, I'm because I'm open, I guess, in the public, and you know, the rest of my family are well, well across the situation. And yeah, I mean, it, it can't be like at Christmas they're still like, no, it's just an actor, Nana. <laughs> He's still just. It's just that pink dollar. It's yeah. very lucrative. Yeah, yeah. You know you can't get on the ABC as a straight white guy anymore, so... Uh, <laughs> Not technically true, but uh, yes. Uh, well, if, you're, if you're already in, you're fine, but you <laughs> no new hires. Yeah, no. no new straight white guy hires. <laughs> Suck on that, everyone. Get in a minority, and then you'll, uh, you'll get on that. <laughs> I heard someone actually literally complaining about that the other day, because obviously, at last, at long last, yes. you know, there is a greater um, focus on diversity, not just like sexual diversity, but, mm. you know, the colour of faces and experiences of people's lives that we're seeing on television, which is long overdue for a country that is mo- as multicultural as our country. Right. But I did hear a white straight guy go, oh, well, you can't get anything if you're a white straight guy now, can you? And I was mm. like, yeah, no, 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 but we had a good run. Yeah. So, yeah, a real good run. And I still feel like, to be honest, I still feel like we're going to have our time for a while. I don't feel like it's all over for white guys. I feel like you'll be okay, Targa. You'll be doing just fine. Yeah, it'll yeah. be okay, I think. But, um, okay, so when you came out to your friends, because I've been reading a little bit about the Safe Schools, because the Safe Schools review came out, mm. uh, four stars, read like a five. Yeah. And um, a <laughs> little comedy joke there, guys. guys. Good comedy joke. Um, but it, it, one of the things that are in the Safe Schools review, I, 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 whether I was reading about, because the, the the propaganda from the Australian Christian Lobby and organisations like that, that, that it's full of like tips on like, you know, binding your mm. dick and or like weird, like, you know, George Christensen, you know, compared it to like grooming of pedophiles and stuff like that. Yeah. So I actually thought, well, I'll read it. Yeah. That's the best way to like, you know, I'm yeah. going to read it's about it and see what it. they do. And one of the scenarios that they were doing was this idea of like, you know, pretending that your friend has just like, you know, come out to you and then explaining that if your friend comes out to you, that doesn't mean that they are in love with you. Right. That means that they trust you and yeah. they're telling you the big... And I was like, all this stuff seems like yeah. things that would be really helpful for kids yeah. in this situation. It's really helpful. It's really important. It's been around for like 10 years in Victoria and the the spite involved in this campaign against it is just... Heartbreaking. It seems like some people are prepared to lose their seats. I was reading articles saying that some members are prepared to lose the election on this fucking issue so they can win back the party, like the the right of the party, can win back the Liberals. So, and, you know, my my friend Peter Taggart, who's brilliant, tweeted the other day, like, imagine being George Christensen's electorate and, like, the roads are fucked, but your MP's too busy trying to make sure the gay kids are getting bullied. Right. Like, it's just... And the Australian has just gone all out, this horrific attack... And you can just tell none of them have talked to a young trans kid. No one has actually, none of them have actually reached out to people who are benefited by these programs and asked them, you know, what does it mean to you? Why is this important? You know, uh, do you think this could change in any way? Or, you know, it's it's really heartbreaking, man, that people well, spend so much time and energy. The interesting on thing about it too is <clears throat> Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier, who you mm. can you know think what you want about, but I thought really nailed it at least in this example. Yeah, he said they don't have a problem with the program; they have a problem with the kids who need the program. Totally, and it would. I'd I'd be more generous about the people making these claims if they all weren't white straight guys who are just like, no, I just don't like 
and cis- it's cisgendered icky. guys. I don't really, want, that's yeah. that's. I mean, you know what? I probably a lot of them are sort of like, oh yeah, I guess we've lost the battle on gays. But these trans kids right. tell you what? That's weird. And it's contested gender theory. It's like no, trans people exist. They're around. They have some of them have, you know, safe schools has saved their lives. Right. Um, they wouldn't be around if it wasn't for safe schools. Um, yeah, and that that kind of that erasure and um, that idea that trans being sensitive and conscious of trans issues is like the gay lobby going too far is just is just abhorrent. So yes, I mean safe schools. I, I've since since the review, I've looked up the list and like, oh, my high school isn't on safe schools, it isn't part of the coalition. So I've sort of touched base with some teachers and sort of said, you know, have we thought about this? And there is a way can we can we make this happen because it would have made a huge difference to my life because a lot of my friends would openly say homophobic things around me all the time, and then I came out and they were lovely, right? And so they, I just don't think they ever would have considered the fact that them calling something shit gay constantly right. was just sort of twisting the knife a bit in my head when I'm like, oh, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay, and I'm associating that. With with the, the worst thing constantly every, every day in the school year. Let me ask you a question that I think about a lot. Um, how do you feel the comedy community, and again, I don't want you to say anything here that in any way um, is a definitive thing or has to be a definitive thing or is like you speaking on behalf of like definitively on behalf, but it sometimes occurs to me that in the comedy community, because we're such renegade free speakers and you can't <laughs> be offended by anything, yeah. that... You know, whether it's someone being foreign, somebody being fat, somebody being gay or whatever, it almost goes back to that high school, you know, teasing, bullying line. Am I wrong in that? Or is that like, do you you ever feel that? Do you feel, feel like as a gay person in the comedy community, sometimes you have to put up with like, you know, joking slings and slurs and stuff that you know that you wouldn't ordinarily or or do you think that, that that's not right what i'm what i'm saying there no i mean generally no i i generally i find the comedy community to be a, a really loving accepting place and i find it to be filled with people you know who is just as a community we're just constantly airing how shit we are we think as people and our failings as 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 people and and, and therefore we are loving of of difference and right. we are loving regardless I don't care who you fuck or where you're from or where your parents are from if you're funny you're funny and we're having right. fun with each other and everything about me is fair game and everything about you is fair game because we love each other and we you know we, we know it's all in good fun yeah my my issue is and I and I reckon and you see this a lot of sort of like feminist critique of comedy too there is this kind of good guy mentality sometimes in comedy that is hey I'm not racist I'm not homophobic um you know, I support gay marriage, and therefore my material about gay marriage and this stuff is is a hundred percent is all is all good. You know, even though I may be relying on some stereotypes about gay people, I might be you know taking some easy routes to laughs here. It's all good because ultimately I'm saying gay marriage is. Right. I mean, I myself have like that's the first thing when I sit down on something right is like going and like you know because i reckon like early on yeah. when you were trying to make a good point sometimes you'd make it with like a you know like a lazier sure. example you yeah. know and it's one of the first things that really bothers me and would certainly bother me in my own work when i find those bits where i'm right yeah you know, totally of those of things as well i mean yeah. well everyone yeah. can be yeah like i mean i have there's a, a, a little story i told at the end of my show the other night that isn't really in the show yeah but you saw mm. and earlier in the show i play with the idea of like you know what's racist and what's not racist and then yeah. there is a line in that last joke that technically is racist now yeah. it's a positive racist joke like yeah. it's one of those things but 
as we all know, positive racism is still racism. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, you know, saying all black guys have big dicks is still racism, yes. even though people consider that. To, it's not. It's saying that everyone of one thing is exactly the same, yeah. which in itself is yeah. racism. So even if you give it a, like, positive spin, you've still got to examine the fact that you've relied on a cliche about an entire... It's, it's homogenizing, right? right? It's like painting a whole group of people with yeah. with one trait, whether that's a good or, or, right. or negative trait. It, it is still this yeah. kind of dehumanizing. And so I do this thing about, like, the Asian baby being smarter than that. But still, yep. like, you know, and even that, like, I exam- like you, like, yeah. I don't know. I just don't know if I'm, you know. And, yeah. and so at least in that moment, I hope to at least acknowledge it. But I've seen it and hopefully not done it too much, but I probably have done it at some stage, you know, with like marriage equality and those sort of issues. That like, yeah. you see it where someone goes, they're making their point, but then they're suddenly doing this, like, gay character. <laughs> Like, you know, this is like gay guys should be in the army and now I'm gay and I'm in the army. I'm fabulous or whatever. And it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're actually. It's hard hard because you're like, I know your heart's in the right place. And you know what the other thing is? I think the other one that I think more people would be guilty of is class stuff. And I actually noticed, and again, this is one I'm I'm a big guilty one of. So Bogan. Yeah. I I really think that the new generation of comics, and and I'm working on this too, is Bogan is shorthand for, for poor people. Right. And it is becoming this sort of this classist thing, and even and even you know on your show that I saw on Tuesday there was that you made like an Ipswich joke when you're yeah. in Brisbane, so it was an Ipswich joke like people from Ipswich are, uh-huh. are a certain yeah. mental capacity they can't get the up with stuff. the woman in the, the the audience. I asked the audience how old you were when a, a, a kid yeah. says mama or dada, right? And she. It turned out it thought I said when you become, become like, mum and but yeah. she said oh twenty six or twenty eight yeah and so I did a bit about right. I mean I had to do something <laughs> but even at the time I was like come on I'm better than that come on so this yeah, yeah. The idea, like that's when you meet your, yeah right. that's when you meet your mum yeah so um, that's really interesting to me too because if if you believe in punching up in comedy which which I you know largely do. But I also believe in telling the truth. It's this kind of this fine balance. You know, Bill Maher talks about it. He's like, look, not all. Not all black dudes have big dicks, but some of them do. So, but some of them do. So you get this little leeway, and no joke is going to actually be fully representative of the complexities of the world. But we we sort of deal in in sort of general truths and you know generalizations in comedy. You you often do. Um, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. I I find it all fascinating. I I just think the way. That when you realise that jokes you make that you think are all good, you re-examine them. And you think actually, what's the underlying assumption there? Um, and do I want to endorse that and play that? Then, then I don't know. Oh, I mean, I've I've got things wrong uh, consistently over the years on those things. Right. Like in retrospect, like the one that I, I talk about a bit that comes up because it's just the most obvious example is I used to have a routine about um, you know obesity at, at school. And because I, I was a fat kid as right. well. And yep. so in my show, in my like stage show, it was a whole bit about me being a fat kid yep. and then me offering solutions, you know, to the obesity problem through the prism that I was a fat kid. Yep. But I ended up doing it at the gala, just the, the solutions bit right. without the prism. Right. And looking back on it, because yeah. in my head, it still was all like, you know, because it checked out as part of the whole thing. Yep. And I didn't take that moment to go, okay, if you just see this three minutes of it without yes. the context and you are now not a fat kid, yes. you know, you're like this skinnier dude dressed up at a, a gala sure. saying how we can fix fat kids. Yeah, yeah. That's a different joke. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And it doesn't feel like, you know, you're not coming from the same place. Yeah. And so sometimes even that, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, well, I probably guess, I guess in retrospect, I'm aware that that did not come across in the same way as... Yeah. Anyway. I had it on Tuesday too. I, I have, a bit, have a bit about racism in the show. You, 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 I've said the show. show. It's brilliant. It's, oh. It honestly is... 
I love the show so much. I thought it was, um, it's always, I mean, I, I, I know that you've been, you know, around for a while now and you've done some really great stand up and you've done, but it just felt like uh, it just a whole different level for you. Now, where do you think that has come from? You did Edinburgh last year mm. and I always think like, you know, Edinburgh really will destroy you or make you better in a general <laughs> sense. And it feels like you've come out of it like much, much better. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like I, I, yeah, I think, yes, it would make you either quit comedy or mm. make you a, a substantially better comedian. I was really proud of that show. So doing a show that I was proud of that I thought was solid for, for a month in a big arts festival and kind of, you know, holding, holding my own that, that did a lot for sort of my, my confidence. Uh, but also, you know, this show is is sort of marrying my interest with politics and and the world and stuff. And I, I tried it before. 2012, I did a show called Doing Stuff, which was tr- trying to be about political activism and the politics. And it was it was it didn't nail it, you know. So um, yeah, it was just a bit a bit of a weak show that way. So to have another to come around again with better skills and a better understanding of what I think about things and what I want to talk about and the kind of you know stand up that I really love doing. That's probably fed into the show being being the work of genius it is. <laughs> so, I mean, but it, it look, you know what? It it's a really, really, really good show. Thank like you it's Will. it's one of those things where for where you're at in your career and your age, it, right. to me is that thing of going, oh yeah. Like I mean, I knew at some stage you would do a show that good, right. but it's come like really quickly. Thanks. Like it's a really good time, and you can tell that there's been a lot of effort and a lot of thought gone into it. And you know the thing about it, and I, I've said this to you um, off air, but it's just fucking funny as well. Like it makes some great points and it's really well thought out, but there's just uh, it's just really really funny, which is the the main job. You know, yeah. I think sometimes you can get bogged down on like, you know, not you I mean in a general sense, you sure. can get bogged down in trying to make a point or, you know, trying to like conceive something that is more brilliant than your capacity is at the time and forget yeah. that importantly for you to achieve <laughs> any of those other things it yeah. has to be just really funny. So, what is your philosophy to stand up comedy and how has that developed over the time that you've been doing it? Oh man, I mean it's yeah, still still changing a lot and I think at the moment a lot of it is is what we've just been talking about like, you know, how much what what is what are my personal politics or what are my beliefs about things and what kind of uh message do I want to get out into the world and if I do that through comedy, you know, how do I how do I do that? Now is there stuff that I would say automatically that, you know, to someone else sitting in the crowd would be a bit fucked up. Now there are big limits to that, I think, because I do think that there are limits to offence, and there are certainly things I say that offend a lot of people. Um, but if if I know that they're coming from the right place and I stand by them, if I can stand by them, if I can think about them and go, no, no, I I believe that in that joke, then that's then I'm I'm happy. But there is I've certainly done a lot of jokes in my time. Like uh, actually, if someone did, if someone called me up on that, I. I couldn't defend it. I would just say this got a laugh, therefore I, I included it in my act. Uh, last night, I had a girl come up to me after the show. There is a piece in my show about a guy who said to me um, in America that he'd never come to Australia because it's too dangerous. And so the bit's kind of about, you know, playing out the idea that dangerous animals are not as dangerous as guns, yes. right? Yes. And there's this one line in it that's meant to parody, you know, uh, anyway, it's. It's not a Steve Irwin joke, right? But it has a stingray in it, yes. And it parodies a bit. It doesn't like say Steve Irwin. Sure. It's not like ha ha, Steve Irwin died. Yep. But it it slightly references it. And the really interesting thing about that is that in a show that has much darker things than that in it, yep. That's the moment that takes people's breath away, right? Like even after all this time, yeah. And so I then talk about that, mm. like like literally the point of it is right. 
Why that? Why that? Like, why yeah, that? Where yeah. I don't even say his name, where yeah. I don't even... Why that? Yeah. And then I have this bit about that. After the show last night, a girl came up to me and she was just like... She said, look, you know, I really love the show. I've really enjoyed it. But I just thought that Steve Irwin thing, it was too personal to me. And I said to her, and like what you're saying about being able to explain. Yeah. I said, I think it's there because A, he's not the butt of that joke. Yep. It's a parody of the language of, you know, you can have my uh, gun when you pull it out of my cold dead hands. It's right. like, so it's literally just a parody of the gun thing within yes. the format of the joke. Right. The joke's not at his, but it does. I'm, I'm honest enough that clearly it's slightly referencing that thing. Yeah. Right. But I, the point is that to me it's interesting because it really challenges us on this idea that sometimes we just hear key words totally. or think something and react without examining it fully. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes you'll know what it's like if you want to, if you say a- Aboriginal in a joke, even if you're making the best point, yep. people have already disengaged with that joke. Yep. I had a woman come and see my show like two, three years ago when I was doing a whole chunk about, you know, uh, you know, uh, asylum seekers coming to Australia and taking yep. our jobs and yep. it, like had this whole piece about it. Yeah. Woman's come and seen the show and then written me to you afterwards. She's like, I'll never see you again because the way you hate both people. And I was like, oh. I mean, you saw that bit. Yeah. Like the whole bit in the context of the show. The show. I could not understand how there was any other way but to take what I'm saying as... Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, the point is that I've thought about it and the point is I wanted to – I want to examine that moment. Yeah. I want us to feel that moment and I want us to say, you know, it's fine for her to be upset. Like, I mean, as I said to her, I said, this is in no way to say to you that you, you can't be upset or reminded of something that was personal to you about that. Yeah. In the same way as, you know, there might be an Indigenous person in the room who when I'm talking about January 26 or Adam Goods yeah. has a personal connection to that or that moment in Joan Rivers, I don't know if you've seen a piece of work, you know, the yeah. where, you know, the one woman gets upset at her right. at the gig because she touches on one subject that is personally offensive to that woman and right. she makes that point about... I've just been offending everyone for an yes. hour and a half. Yes. Yes, you're more offended by that one, but you've yeah. got to take it in the context of... And even if you're saying exactly the right thing, yeah, some people just think you've mentioned this right. topic at a comedy show. Yeah, shouldn't Therefore, do that. you do not think it is serious. Correct. Which is just completely, you know, in the evolution of comedy over the past 20 years, it's like, that's, like we're talking about the most serious shit. That's the best comedy is right. when you go really to the heart of something that's really dark and serious and important to you and, and explore it through comedy. That's exactly what we want to be doing. I had uh, two quick things. A couple of years ago, I had a bit about indigenous land rights, about how uh, people, you know, there were those protests when, you know, Julie Gillard lost her shoe and stuff. And there was this movement from indigenous protesters saying, we want our country, we want our country back. Yeah. You know, this idea that they you know, were getting the land back. And then I was trying to do a bit about. You're not getting the land. Look, I, I've, I've more power to you. I, I, um, you know, you guys deserve better recognition and, and better um, rights and services and resources. But you're not getting the country back. We signed the lease. This like applying right. very white ideas of uh-huh. property ownership towards the whole country. Looking back on it, it was probably a bit of a clumsy bit, but I still believe in the motivation of the bit. Did it at a event at the comedy festival, and a woman came up to me afterwards. She was indigenous, and she worked for the comedy festival. Yeah. And she looked me bang in the eye and said, look, I really don't appreciate the way you're using the rape and dispossession of my people for comedy. And it was it was the most intense confrontation uh-huh. ever, and I, all he could say was like, look, I, I don't think the bit's racist. I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. And then I had to stand there and hand out flyers for my show as people were walking out, and she was just looking at me. It was, it was fucking full on, right? 
And then this year, I have this bit about racism. And when I was in Perth, I was doing this stuff about racism, about how we're awkward about talking about racism and how people feel uncomfortable about why people talk about racism often. And it wasn't getting the laughs that it normally got. Uh-huh. And I noticed that in this venue, in the front row, there was, a, there was a black man sitting in the front row and he was very, very dark skinned. And it was a round venue. So everyone in the venue could, could clearly see this guy's in the front row. And I called them on it. And yeah. I said, Perth, I know you're looking at this guy. Right. And the laugh was amazing. Like it was broke the tension. Right. It popped that balloon. He, he was amazing. He started laughing as well. Right. And he was like recognized how, how much he stood out in this very, very white middle class town of Perth. And it was this extraordinary moment. I'm sure you've had them, you know, th- throughout the years. Just this, 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 like completely present um, moment that made that show really special, and that was not only, I think, very funny, but also made my point as well. What how the show was being received in the room was making my same point about how awkward we are about racism. Exactly what you were talking about. Exactly, it was, yeah, yeah. Tuesday this week here in Brisbane, same thing happened. Doing the racism bit, not really going well. Guy front row is black, and I called it nothing right. like all the goodwill in the room just shh, just gone and it was and it, i felt horrible i felt really it was a you know i was trying to i tr- laughed it off and tried to keep going on and i think i got them back by the end of the show but it was this yeah this real sense of like i felt like a bully i felt like him because uh-huh. he didn't laugh as well this, this guy so i really didn't want him to feel like i was yeah part of the fucking problem it was yeah. real weird and there would have been that moment when you're performing going this fucking worked his ass off in Perth what are you <laughs> I know I know I was like what happened and you I were don't like, know if oh, you were like this is brilliant I've got a bit up my sleeve for this this is uh, this is perfect oh. I guess it was just like I know it's worth the risk because right. I know how well how good it paid off in Perth but and I, I reckon that's a Perth Brisbane thing or the I, way I went about it or, but I, I think it would the first time you would have done it completely naturally in the moment because yes. you had, didn't have it planned and the second time it's like that second time you try to do a jokey improvise perfectly sure, yeah. the first time. No good. You're not list- you're not in the moment. You're trying to recreate a different moment. Right. If you had been purely in the moment with that, rather than going, oh, the, you know, to yeah. almost kind of doing the same thing, you, you probably would have made the difference. Yeah. I think. Um, the, uh, it's interesting to me though. Like I, when I was in Adelaide, uh, this guy came up to me after the show and he said, oh, "You know, it's interesting what you're saying about, um, you know, uh, Australia Day and, and mm. you know, changing the date and stuff like that, and the Indigenous stuff, Adam Goods." So there's quite a lot of like uh, things that are around our relationship with our Indigenous people in the show. Um, but I try to talk about it from the point of view of our relationship with our Indigenous people rather than, you know, pretending I have some individual insight into what it's like to be an Indigenous person or those sort of things. Right. Um, and he said, well, I noticed there wasn't, you know, your, your crowd's pretty white. Mm. And I said, well, actually, I mean... I, I agree. Like, I mean, there's, yeah. I don't think there is a lot of, you know, a heap of Indigenous people who come and see my show and the ones who do tend to be media professional, highly educated, you know, kind right. of those Indigenous yeah. people, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of Asian people, like I get a lot of like, you know, Asian Australians, like, you know, Greek, Italian, that sort of like crowd. Yeah. But yeah, I'm like, it's not like, so as a white person, I then constantly am examining that thing of going, am I, like what, it's a hard one, I reckon, which is like, am I, should I not be talking about this because it's not, my story and experience yep. and I'm mostly a white guy talking to, you know, whitish people about yep. this thing <laughs> yep. or 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 you isn't that 
Or is that the point? The point is that, like, at least, we, I mean, we have to have this conversation before we can even get to the yeah. the next one, you know? We've got to bridge the gap between booing Adam Goods yes. and working out that we shouldn't have booed Adam Goods yes. before we can actually fix some of those other shit. I yeah. feel like maybe that's what you're trying to do. And it's the same thing with if I talk about, like, women or if I talk about, like, feminism, you know, those sort of issues. I always just try to be like... If I'm saying this wrong, if you're like a like if you're a woman and you think I'm doing feminism wrong, tell me. Yeah. Like you I mean it's right, not it's right. not it's not up to me to and like like you with the like you know gay material that sort of thing. I've heard you speak about that and I constantly think about that when I'm I'm going to talk about something I'm like are you talking about this like really like and are you willing that if some like if someone who is gay or LGBTIQ right. or like yeah. whatever a transgender and you're talking about this thing, if they came to you and said, that's wrong, or this is, yeah. you know, blah, 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 you've got to be kind of open to yeah. to that. You yeah. can't be too tired. How do you deal with that? How do you take that to the table? If you're not... Yeah, someone someone shared a meme <laughs> recently, which was a fucking ridiculous meme. It was just like, this guy on a motorbike with a fucking skull and flames going. So, it was, that, was, that was the image. But the, the words were, uh, comedy isn't about subverting expectations it's about being transphobic homophobic sexist racist and misogynist none of that shit affects me so it's just a goddamn hoot i think was the thing i'll send you the, the uh-huh. anyway and that was that was that's ultimately the the guiding principle you know these uh, uh, comedians who i see spend a lot of time and energy defending everything they they say and saying that everything's fair game and everything's on the table and um political correctness has gone mad often straight, white, cisgendered men saying those things, to me just aren't prepared to be open-minded. You know, comedian, you have to be an open-minded person, right? And you want to constantly be re-examining things and learning stuff. And I think Patton Oswalt is a great example of this. He's talked openly about how he's learnt about things and he was staunch, very staunch defender of, of everything's you know up for comedy, which I agree with him, but the way you go about it can be fine-tuned because if you get feedback directly from people telling you that you know, when you make this joke, this is how it makes me feel, I think you're a bit of a cunt if you don't factor that into your thought process. Now, your thought process might be, I consider that, I recognise that, I stand by this joke. I had this recently, you know, I have a big chunk on feminism in my in my show, and there were two uses of the word bitch in my show. Mm-hmm. One of them was me playing a character of a, a caricature of a bitchy fashion woman calling yep. another woman a bitch which i stand by the other one on re-examination and a woman sent me a facebook message saying hey just saying i really like your feminism bit you're saying bitch in your show right. yeah uh the second bit i could not justify it all i'm saying i've just put that in there because it's sort of a punchy word right without considering the fact that women in the crowd might you know might interpret that a certain way and so you change and you grow you grow with it i i, con- I constantly want that conversation with my audience and i hope that i can minimize the 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 or, or hasten the learning experience so that when i'm writing a show and putting together a routine i am very conscious of of, of that and how it's going to go out there i feel like we're being because uh, I, I, I i i there's two things on this and you know it is something that we have to constantly sort of examine um I think comedy is a broad church and I think it should be absolutely free speech and you should have the right to make a joke about anything that you want to make a joke about. However, that does not mean that you have the right for those jokes to be accepted without consequence. Or And this is this idea of free speech. What people talk about or complain about so much, like 90% of the media these days is white straight guys like complaining about being silenced. Yeah, (laughs) I was like, if you just spent the time you're complaining about silence saying the things you're interested in, you get them out because you've got plenty of opportunities. (laughs) You've got four 
your jobs, Andrew Bolton. You're being silenced in all of them, apparently. Yeah. But what they really mean is they want to be able to say the things they used to say without people being offended by it or complaining about it. And I think as comedians, we have to be a bit stronger on think about what you've said and yeah. whether you're going to stand by it. Yeah. Like, even if it were intentionally, you know, provocative. Yeah. But I'm really a bit sick of, like, comedians with thin skins. I think we've yeah. got to be... Like, we're meant to be cool. We're meant to be, you know, like, we don't care. Like, we're comedians. Like, yeah. and we become so fucking sooky and like, oh, someone didn't like my joke and yeah. now this is a like, like, shut up. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if you like your joke, stand by your joke. Totally. And then just, you know, justify it. But yeah. don't tell shitty jokes. Yeah. You know, like if you can't stand by them. Sure. I mean, the thing that I admire about Jim Jeffries, whatever you think of his mm. material, and there's certainly a big, like, I think his gun routine is one of the top 10 comedy routines of all time. That's great, yeah. Of all time. Yeah. Like, it is just a... It's a bit that is so good to the point that every time I have something about guns I want to write about, yeah. I just go, fuck, I can't do most of this because <laughs> Jim's already done it better, sure. right? And then there's some other stuff of his that is not to my taste. Yeah. But that he thinks... Like, he goes, well, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And you never hear Jim, like, fucking complaining about, oh, someone didn't like yeah, my disabled yeah, yeah. toilets or whatever it is, <laughs> you know? He's like, well, I'm Jim Jeffries and this is what I do and some That's people aren't going to like it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as artists, you stand, say what you believe. Mm. Don't just say something to be provocative or whatever. Say what you believe and then, you know be willing to stand by it a little bit more. I feel yeah. like we've become a little... and I mean, more broadly. You know, this every time you hear political correctness has gone mad or free speech or whatever, yeah. it's just someone who doesn't like that they're now getting in trouble or you know, being mocked or sure, ostracised for their old... On, yeah, yeah. Their, their privilege is being challenged and they're being pushed up again. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's, never, it's never someone who's actually lost free speech because it's normally because they've just said something really <laughs> dickhead. Yeah, right. I mean, let's be honest. If Pauline Hanson's back after 20 years... <laughs> No one in this country is going to lose free speech. I think you're fine, guys. He's doing okay. Yeah. Uh, let's have a little pause because we've run out of drinks. Oh, and, yes. uh, you know, and I don't want to keep you all day because we've both got shows tonight. But let's have a little pause and we'll get a drink and then uh, uh, we'll come back and uh, ask a few on the way home. Okay, we had a little break. I turned on the air conditioner and uh, got us some drinks. So not, not much of a drink. We're running out of liquid refreshment in this room. <laughs> we'll have to move on to booze in a second. We've pretty much gone through. Oh, that's when the real good shit gets going. I um, uh, want to ask you a bunch of things, but I'll get you back another time and talk about uh, some of them because I think there's just some that I want to talk about right now. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about um, the other show that you're doing during the comedy festival because this is absolutely fascinating to me. So explain to uh, the audience what, what it is that you're doing. I'm doing a show called Boundless Planes to Share. And it is a show that... All about the second verse of the Australian National Anthem. <laughs> it's very boring <laughs> and shit. Uh, no, I mean, it, it takes the, the National Anthem... That those two lines in the second uh, verse of the National Anthem as sort of a starting point and sort of wondering... And I'm certainly not the first person to, to do that when it comes to Australia's treatment of refugees, but um, it's a comedy lecture is the premise, mm -hmm. but it's better than that sounds. And the idea is that it's a sort of explainer, it's a comedy show, it's an exploration of how we got to where we're at in terms of the way Australia treats refugees with offshore detention and our terror, our fear of the boats. Oh, okay, so a bit of, of a history of it? Like, is there a his historical element to That's it? That's a big chunk of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. I mean, certainly just in researching the show, learning about the history of how things evolved to where they're at was was really informative and from a comedic point of view is it easier to be funny about things that are historical rather than things that are happening right now do you think absolutely yes yes i mean you know 
a big chunk of the laughs is the early history and mm. just how blatantly racist Australia was openly, how everyone said it was a huge motivating factor for federation. Um, you know, there's a quote in there from a guy who was in the Victorian Legislative Council describing the Jewish refugees who are arriving as slinking rat-faced men of five feet in height. You know, this is in the public record. Right. And, um, uh, just, yeah, just the way we went about things with a white Australia policy that was in, in force for 70 years in this country and, and, you know, but really did inform literally the colour of your skin was closely examined and considered and um, people of darker skin were just not, not seen as as, uh, as wanted, as, as desired at all. We wanted to keep Australia white. That was a really big motivating factor of a whole bunch of public policy. And so then all that feeds up into the 70s. 70s, you lose the white Australia policy, and then you have the Vietnam War ends, and you actually have, you know, people arriving by boat um, from Vietnam. Gulf Whitlam, you know, beloved figure of the left, quite racist, you know, saying things like Vietnamese sob stories, don't ring my withers, and uh, I'm not having hundreds of fucking Vietnamese bolts coming into this country. This is, you know, reported from behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, Malcolm Fraser... You know, was really coming in and actually doing the the right thing. And the Malcolm Fraser out. thing, I've spoken about a little bit because I was in Melbourne. Was it last year when he? Yeah, it was just last year, wasn't it? When he died. When he died. Yeah. yeah. So it was during the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I think, when he died. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of people uh, may know this, but the UNHCR report, uh, I think, oh no, maybe it was the Moss report. They re- Moss review of mm. that report that they did that was released on the day that Malcolm Fraser died, which oh, was shit. the last day they could actually release it, and they released it in you know so it would get overwhelmed by this story of malcolm fraser dying which was doubly insulting because malcolm fraser had been a person who had actually you know kind of lobbied on behalf of like you know refugees and asylum seekers but i was in melbourne and on the steps of uh you know state parliament house up the top there uh, of melbourne uh the vietnamese community had a march and they put a full page out in the paper and they had this candlelit vigil for and like you know kind of celebrated him and you know their lives in australia because of that and I looked at that and I was like, our Prime Minister died and none of us gave a fuck. Like, you know yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. Like, none of us did anything. No one, no one lit a candle or blah, yeah. blah, blah. But these people whose lives he changed, look how grateful they are. Yeah. Look how much they love this country. Yeah. That they've put an ad in the paper, that they've done this march down the street. They're making speeches to honour this leader who yeah. gave them an opportunity. Yeah. And like 30, 40, 50 years later, they still are so incredibly grateful for what was done. And the, his government as a whole, too. There's an incredible press release that was put out by Andrew Peacock and Michael McKellar, um, the um, foreign minister and uh, minister for immigration at the time. Song B-12 is this uh, boat from Vietnam that's coming into Darwin Harbour. It is almost a tamper again. You know, it is, you know, people, South Vietnamese refugees on the boats coming into Darwin Harbour. Huge amount of resistance from people who work in the harbour, from the union movement, from from the Labour Party, to be honest, from the, from, you know, the... Labourers and unions and and gen- the general public as well, a lot of antithesis, a lot mm-hmm. of xenophobia. Uh, and they're coming up on the election. This is in 77, coming up in the, in the, in the re-election. It's in November. It's all very Tampa-esque, very, like all these echoes or pre- predecessor to, to the Tampa situation. And uh, those two ministers release a press release and say, we cannot let this become an election issue. Mm-hmm. We have to remove this from uh, politics domestic politics because we have th- th- that would be a truly inhuman thing to do it's yep. a direct quote and it's and reading that press release is this i get a west wing boner just what reading it because you're like this is political courage this is people standing up against the worst aspects of a frightened public yeah and actually we, being leaders we know that we could use this yeah 
Like, because that's what gets used. I mean, this is the thing. It, it, I mean, it always outrages me when, like, you know, you have, you know, the Murdoch-owned newspapers particularly campaigning hard against, you know, these economic asylum seekers who are going to come here and bludge off our government yeah. when Rupert Murdoch's not paying his taxes in Australia <laughs> and there isn't a bigger, you know, bludger in Australia than Rupert Murdoch. Right. You know, I mean, like, this is a man who has constantly been poisoning the water supply in Australia right. and then ripping money out of the country. He was the ATO's number one, you know, on their tax dodger list. And right. they have the nerve, but this is the way it works because they don't want you as the audience to be looking at the reason and saying, Hey, is the reason my life is shit because Rupert Murdoch isn't paying his taxes and that's why we can't have hospitals and roads? Right. Or is it the fault of this desperate person fleeing persecution coming here on a boat with nothing? Yeah. Well, Rupert Murdoch's newspaper is telling me it's that person. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess there's no conflict there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's classic. I mean, it's classic way that the privileged people like keep you know you don't don't look at us no no it's someone who's below you on the chain because yeah. everyone wants someone below them on the chain sure. and it's easy to believe that that person below you on the chain is going to come and take your stuff totally it's it's these empty fe- fears that have just never been borne out no ever anywhere well i mean particularly in australia which is world renowned as the most successful multicultural story of all time for yep. all our inherent racisms and white australias and all those sort of things the actual experiment of australia if you take a step back if you read uh, george megalogenius's uh, book right, yep, it's an amazing look at yeah. how great multiculturalism and immigration and all these things have been for Australia through generations and how in every generation these exact same stories play themselves out and we feel the exact way about the Greeks and the Italians and then the you know the whatever like it it the patterns keep repeating themselves. Right. But the problem is that, you know, what's happening at the moment with like, you know, say African, uh, you know, some of this African immigration to Australia and there's youth gangs and these sort of things is we don't have those support mechanisms in place anymore. It's not good. If you just let someone come here on a boat or if you let someone immigrate here and then just leave them. No, yeah, right. Then yes, of course there's going to be problems. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it no and no one claims that this is this is an easy thing to do. It is no. it is a difficult thing to take people, particularly traumatized people who have fled from their lives to come to a western society with different values and thoughts and uh, you know thoughts and yeah. opinions and ways about going things and you know to make their lives you know to give them economic opportunities that's that's all very tough and it is going to be hard there was a brilliant article that you may have even shared but certainly someone shared about a guardian writer who was living with a, a, a Oh yes, yeah? right. Do you yes. know this article who had a I'm talking Syrian about? Guy stay with yeah. her in her apartment, and right. even for all her good intentions yeah. and his good intentions, there were so many cultural things, you know, to do with gay people and all those sort of things that totally. he had to massively. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. No, even the, in the most ideal of circumstances, sure, it's not easy. It's not easy, but it is. Yeah, it is. What is our moral obligation to do that? If we if we cannot do this, if we cannot get better at treating the vulnerable people who come here asking for our help, then what is the, what is the point of all our privilege and right. our AFL grand finals and the block and the logies and like what's what's the fucking point of any of it? If if we if can't our priv- funnel yeah. funnel the the advantages and the sheer luck that we have in this country into making things better for other people, I don't I don't care what it is. And it's also just, yeah, as I say, empty fears. People living in the community on bridging visas are 45 times less likely to commit crimes than the local population. Right. They're 24 times less likely to commit crimes than federal politicians. Yep. 
And, you know, look, there are endless examples of the incredible economic contribution that people can give, you know, refugees who have given in the the Korean community and Nil, or obviously the whole Vietnamese Vietnamese community is obviously, you know, the example held up a lot. But also... Except bloody Ando coming here on a boat, (laughs) taking our jobs. I had a joke of the show. Should have been Aussie comedians' jobs. (laughs) The ultimate funny thing up another way to the the I could have been the happiest refugee. (laughs) Bloody Ando. Sounds like Ando. So... Probably ripping off my stuff. Probably. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> you should get him on. He'd be great. Yeah, I think Arn, Arn actually, uh, my first ever season I'd ever did in Sydney, Arn did support for. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Arn and Sarah Kendall were oh, my support man. acts in my first ever Sydney season. I've done all right. Yeah, grand total of about 80 people saw us <laughs> <laughs> over two weeks, but <laughs> good times. <laughs> Still counts. Still counts. Uh, yeah, no, I think Arn would be great. I'd really love to have him on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but I... Uh, do you offer any uh, solutions in the show? Is there like, do you have a theory on what the best place? Because at the moment, and this is the thing that really pisses me off about the debate, is that both sides, uh, both major parties seem to have this attitude of like, they've bought this line of, you know, we've stopped the boats, we've stopped death at sea, which is a, a lie. Let's be honest. The boats, A, have not stopped. They have slowed down to a certain yes. extent. Uh, we do not know whether we're stopping death at sea because what we have decided is there's an imaginary line in the ocean mm. that we made with Adam Goods' imaginary spear <laughs> and you can't come across that imaginary line and uh, and we just assume when we turn around the boats, these leaky, desperate boats, yeah. that it's happily ever after. Yeah. They go back and the Taliban's like, oh, you know what, guys? We weren't really that serious about <laughs> it. Build your house again. Come on. Come on, guys. We got punked. We punked uh, you. We punked you good. We didn't. You know what? If you love something, let it leave if it comes back. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, we don't know. and yes. we, But we do know that kids are being traumatized and that women are suffering sexual assault and these sort of things. In these prison camps. So if you look at, if it was medicine, right, if if you go, we've stopped the boats, that was the problem, right? Mm. You know, like you had a cough. I've stopped, I've stopped your cough. Yes. Now, the bad news is your balls dropped off. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I still feel like at the moment we're like, but yeah, but we stopped the cough. Right. Yeah, okay, but... Yeah, now that we've dealt with the stop the cough, yes. can we come up with some sort of cough stopper yeah. that doesn't also in, like involve my balls dropping <laughs> off? Go to the balls. Yeah, place, can we yes. have that as well? Is there any chance that we? Because I would be fine with that. I would be fine with the fact if they said we honestly believe at the moment this is our best solution, but we also completely comprehend mm. that this is a terrible solution. And every day we get up and we are like working on a better solution. And tomorrow we'll give you an update on that. And the next. But that's not what it is at the moment. The level of the debate is like, we've stopped the boats and this is a solution. Yes. Solution is a really interesting theme uh, and, a, and a thing to bring up because it's something that we, we talked about a lot. I worked with my, my director, Scott Edgar, in, in putting the show together. It's half the problem. Right. That we think that there is a solution. There isn't one. This is the most complex. Unless you can solve war, environmental disaster, totalitarianism, uh, the persecution of ethnic minorities, and all that shit... Unless you can solve all that, you're actually not going to stop the boats or you're not right. going to stop the fact that poor, vulnerable people come to countries like ours, which we regularly claim as this wonderful, free, you know, fair-go-loving, mm-hmm. freedom-loving country that helps people out, that we're all very charitable and stuff. We advertise that and then right. get confused when people rock up and say, can we have a bit of that, please? Mate, we do uh, multi-million dollar advertising campaigns <laughs> around the world going, where the bloody hell where are you? Scott Morrison was the director of Tourism Australia. We are literally yeah. asking for it. <laughs> 
down here, down the bottom of the world, yeah. showing off our goods. Yeah. Completely unexposed with massive borders. I mean, come on, Australia. You want it. Well, yeah, come on. You knew come what on, you, you wanted. Come on, you knew what you wanted. My, but that's the point. We are constantly... Could I, talk, I just I, want a Milo? Sorry. I, 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 I talk about this in my show, but um, I, the idea that every year... Last year, we had three of the top 10 most livable cities in the world. On any other measure but climate change, we are constantly top three, top four of any country in the world on life expectancy, health expectancy, those sort of things. Of course, if you had an opportunity to go to somewhere, mm. why, would, why wouldn't you go to that? Yeah. And we are never going to be able to run down our country to the point mm. that people... People will not, but people talk about the pull factors. It's the push factors that are the big issue. Mm. Like, I mean, Tony Abbott, I loved when he made that speech, you know, went to the European leaders and he told them to stop the boats. And I'm sure the 16 landlocked countries of Europe <laughs> were like, you know, the Armenians were like, thanks, Tone. That's, thanks, yeah, mate. boats were our big problem with. Yeah. I mean, you've got more refugees in the world at the moment than there are people already in Australia. Mm. The majority of the refugees are not coming here yeah are not our issue no but we are one of the richest countries in the world and we do have a lot of space here yeah I, I mean you can't help but think that we could be doing more so d- take solution out of the thing you know it's yeah. not it, i don't you're absolutely right i don't yeah. think there is a solution but do you have do you have ideas about what would be a better system than the system that we have right now yeah is it there's a few things um i mean you could look at how many people how many people we take in as part of our humanitarian program? It's mm-hmm. sitting around twenty thousand with sort of the thirteen thousand places for Syrian people. You're sitting around twenty twenty thousand like that. Now, the last time the world refugee population was at sixty million, as it now was in after World War Two, nineteen forty nine, we took in seventy five thousand people in in a year. So, and you would think that today we have so many more support services and a greater capacity to accept and resettle people in two thousand sixteen than we did in nineteen forty nine. Mm-hmm. So. You know, yes, I, I've sort of written before that this idea that we can't help everyone has become this we're not going to help anyone idea. But the the kind of the the only upside of the refugee crisis thing is that every every extra person you add into that humanitarian program, that's a life that you're changing forever f- for the better. Uh, you know, some might say that you know if we continue with the turn back program, if you if we accept that, if we accept the idea that we will turn boats around, you know, in those fucking yellow bizarro things, if we do that, then there is really no reason whatsoever to keep people on Manus Island and Nauru. Um, they are gulags. There's like there's about fifteen hundred people there, fourteen hundred people. We can bring them here and we can help them, particularly the two hundred sixty seven who are already here. Or they can go to New Zealand. I mean, the idea that New Zealand has offered to take right. these people and this is considered too good for these dirty boat people is just just a, an obvious um, exposure of how ridiculous the debate has got. That that's that's our level of um, spitefulness that we want to treat these people with. Um, all the media gag laws are just it's just fascism. It's there's no good reason for it whatsoever. I can't even they can't even explain to you why you can't have journalist access to the detention centres on Nauru and Manus Island. I mean, I think as a minimum, and this is you know the perspective that I think that we should all be demanding, whatever you think about this, mm. is that we live in a country that should be, not be doing anything like this without transparency. Right. Like, the government brought in metadata laws because they literally said... If you have nothing to hide, yes. then you have nothing to fear. Right. That that was their policy. Yeah. And yet, 
you, you, we have we should not have our offshore island prisons yep. on a place that journalists cannot access. Yep. If you honestly think that is the best solution and everything is fine there, mm. throw open the doors. Yep. Let people constantly report there. But this idea, you know, those people who got sent home from Save the Children. Yep. By the way, just as a general sense, when your enemies are the human rights condition, the United Nations and Save the Children, yep. maybe you're not Batman, maybe you're the Joker <laughs> in that scenario. But I... <laughs> Scott Morrison just wants to see the world burn, you know, yeah. I mean, but it is that sort of thing of open the doors, let the stories come out, because I think that's why the people who were here genuinely did affect people more. Because what we've basically done is when it's silent, we can ignore it. You know, and that's what the government did very cleverly. They made it all silent. They didn't stop the boats, they stopped us talking about the boats. And then when the people were here, people saw them and they were like, well, of course, they're people. We can't let these... But there are people there too. Yes. You know, we can't be having them. If we're going to have a system that's offshore processing, which yeah. I actually don't believe in offshore processing, but yeah. if we were going to have an offshore processing system, right. it has to be entirely transparent. It has to be on places that journalists can get full access to. And these are the same people who would argue against government. They want smaller government. They distrust government. They, they don't believe in the bureaucracy. They don't believe in government waste when offshore processing costs us about $1.2 billion every single fucking year. It costs seven times more to co- to tran- uh, process people offshore than it does onshore. 500000 to $600,000 per person. Insane. Right? So you've got all this waste, all this money waste. Um... And, yeah, the same people who would argue against government and tell you to question government and government don't know what they're doing, except on this issue, except on the issues of defence, national security, or, yeah, obviously, you know... I mean, well, the other one is, like, we, we touched on free speech earlier. You know, the same people who, like, s- seem to think that 18C, like, of the Racial Discrimination mm. Act, which is, like, the most heinous thing of all time, and we have to get rid of it because it's, like, stopped everything in Australia, right. which it doesn't really. As long <laughs> as you get your facts right in your article and you're making a good point, you sure. actually can pretty much get around 18c but andrew bolt unfortunately just made heaps of his facts up so that was the problem not (laughs) the actual law but anyway (laughs) these same people who are so upset about freedom of speech let the government bring in these laws where journalists like if somebody reveals something to a journalist like whistleblowers can be like you know jailed for like years under this like there was a comical example I saw, but if a farmer revealed how much lettuce he you know sent over to like Nauru for whatever and yeah. like you know, to a journalist and that was printed, both the journalist and the farmer could go to prison for revealing that it's sort of thing. Creepy, it's man. And I talked to Peter Reith. I interviewed Peter Reith for my podcast, and you know it was an amazing insight into the mindset of someone who's been in politics for so long and just sees everything in as politics versus, as politics yep. yeah it is it is it is fucking lefty commie yep. red lies to attack us in our position uh and i said don't i mean aren't you concerned about these reports of you know these horrible abuses and you know these things that people are coming people who work there doctors and charity workers who are motivated by a sense of duty to go to these places and help people are reporting things and saying this they said they've signed a contract they should fulfill that contract that's it that's all they're required to do by their employer there is no no the question of ethics or the idea that they have a responsibility to expose uh, uh, an injustice that they see just did not occur to him and also he, he suggested that a whole bunch of it was made up for political purposes. Yeah, I mean, that's the the worst thing. And I, that goes right back to the Tampa, you know, children overboard. Right. The fact that, like, in the old days, and this is the interesting thing about the Deaths at Sea argument. Mm. Deaths at Sea is new, a new argument. Yes. They managed finally yes. to find a way to frame <laughs> the, the debate. Yes. 
in a way where they were the good guys. Totally. Like, it's compassion. We're yep. actually saving lives, yes. right? Yes. Finally. Yeah. But it didn't used to be that. Nope. It used to be, you know, they're dirty darkies and they're coming here on a boat, you know? <laughs> they throw their kids overboard, which they didn't, but that was the way you'd do it. Sure. I mean, even with the the recent, the the, the baby story, the there was an implication for a day that mm. went round and it was in all the press mm. that maybe the mother of the baby had harmed the baby. Yeah. And then it was completely denied and it was there was no evidence, but that's just a classic example example of yeah. oh no well they just made it up or she did yeah, demonize the person right or, no that's a mother that's a yes. of a baby right like that's the start of this you know i i had a friend <laughs> we were out at dinner and they were saying oh did you see that article about um chinese people are eating their babies now and i said to her i said i mean this in the nicest possible way but that is not true <laughs> Chinese people are not eating their babies. There may be one person in the history of China who's eaten a baby at some stage, but as a general rule, Chinese people aren't eating babies because Chinese people are people and people don't eat their babies. (laughs) I mean, they prepare them in a delicious way, no doubt about that, but they are not eating their babies. I didn't realise the one-child policy was like a menu buffet situation. Well, I mean, I guess they only cooking the second kid, I suppose. Like, I mean, (laughs) we've had it. Okay, barbecue, guys. <laughs> but then, when you eat a Chinese baby an hour later, uh, you want to eat another one. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, oh, anyway, <laughs> good times, good times, guys. We're here all of, here's here's a fucked yeah. up story from our history that, that, that uh, uh, didn't make hasn't made it into the show uh-huh. due to time constraints and just like this is too fucked up to be funny. A woman known as Miss C arrives by boat in in Australia in 1994. In 1989, Tiananmen Square massacre happens. Bob Hawke is moved to tears mm-hmm. so much that he offers refuge to the 42,000 Chinese overstays who are in the country. You're here already, which probably means you're quite wealthy and right. you're able to come and study or work in, in Australia. You don't have to go back to, to China uh, because obviously the Tiananmen Square illustrates how horrific they are at the moment and the you know, kind of persecution you could face going back there if you're a political dissident. Throughout the 90s, we go on to send back a 1,000 people from China just because they come here by boat. One woman arrives in 1994. She goes into detention for three years. She falls in love in detention and, has, and falls pregnant. She is eight and a half months pregnant when all her legal appeals are exhausted, and she's sent back in 1997 at eight and a half months pregnancy, pregnancy goes back to China and voluntarily, in inverted commas, so we're told, uh, has, a, has an abortion. So basically, we sent a woman back to to China to have a coerced abortion, um, and felt perfectly happy with that, and that was all legal and that was fine because we're protecting our borders from what from pregnant Chinese right. women who come here by boat. Yeah, mind blowing. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, yes, and stories abound today of kind of the kind of horrible things that are that are happening at the moment. But um, yeah, the, the the debate is so toxic and so poisonous that. It's just become this sort of, you know, red corner, blue corner, and you sort of pick your side and... Or yeah, they're and, working together. Well, that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, well, firstly, you have the... I mean, Labor pretty much invented what's going on yeah. at the moment. So, sure. you know, and they... And that was the thing about the UNHCR report I, that, I, that I found so weird when the government, you know, were just like, it's a, you know, it's a lie, it's a, you know, it's biased sure. and whatever. Yeah, it's biased in favour of, like, the children. Human and the rights. Human <laughs> rights and stuff. Weirdly enough, for the Human Rights Commission. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony, you know, when Tony Abbott was like, "Well, the United Nations should stop complaining." Yeah, I, I would like to get told, not get told off, but let's just stop doing things. That 
I love that we want to be on the United Nations all the time, but we never agree with anything no, they say on no climate interest. change or refugees or anything. But um, well, Corey's going over there to fix things, so it should be. Fine. Oh yeah, that should be good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as long as they're not marrying any dogs, yeah. <laughs> we'll sort it out. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's not without its sides to it, mm. but it seems amazing to me that we can't work together to come up with a better solution. If we're working together to have this terrible solution, can't we also work together <laughs> to come up with a better solution? Yeah. If both major parties have decided we're going to have offshore detention and we're going to like have some so- sort of this, can't you then, like even though that's a position I don't personally support, can't you then at least work together to come up with a better version of that? Yeah. Have better security guards, you know, make sure that you know they're treated in the way that we would treat anyone and to make sure that we do you know they're in an environment where they're not going to be subject to sexual assault or they're in an environment where the kids do have access to i don't know like i mean th- there's got to be a better way to do it than the way we're doing it now I, I personally think that's probably onshore processing and mm. like you know i tend to disagree I, I tend to agree a lot with like you know julian burnside has really laid out a lot of ways where in like and i grew up in the country yeah. i saw what a great success uh, like immigration we talk about the Chinese yeah. like you know it's like every country town had a Chinese restaurant yeah. that was Chinese immigrants yeah. to Australia yeah. and they went out and they lived in the country and they opened a Chinese restaurant yeah. and the interesting thing about the country I always say is it, everyone always thinks of the country as being really like conservative like you know like homophobic or yeah. racist or blah 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 but the other thing about country communities is they're communities. Yeah. So I think once you're in a country community, yeah. you so you more quickly become part of the community yeah. than say in the city where you know people do come and they end up living with their own people and surrounded by their own people and there isn't that forced engagement no. with the community. Sure. Whereas like if you're in the country town, yeah. You are going to run into these right. people. This is going to happen. Yeah. You, you cannot avoid them. And there is, yes, no, no matter your previous, your you know, preconceived ideas about, uh, you know, foreigners, once they're there on you, in front of you, in front of your main street, or, you know, they're asking a coffee or they come over for some sugar, you got to help them out because that's what decent people but do. But there's also been a great amount of studies of, like, Australian towns that have, like, you know, supported, like, you know, refugees into their town and, like, you know, helped, you know, businesses and whatever open yep. and had amazing economic benefits. Well, this, I yeah. think if we had a program, like, country towns are dying. Yeah. And if we could genuinely, particularly, I mean, it just strikes me that, that you look at something like the snowy, uh, you know, the snowy river scheme and the yep. amount of, like... You know, jobs it provided, particularly for immigrants at yep. the time. Yeah, you know, with our move hopefully towards like renewable energy and like you know, you know wind power and solar, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I just can't imagine that there couldn't be opportunities both from like manual labor through to every aspect of those businesses like if you've got like you know people who are engineers or people who are doctors or nurses or lawyers or whatever these people come into australia you could have new injuries in in industries you could set up in the country you know places for people to go yeah like i know some people argue that thing of like you can't tell people where to live or where to go but i reckon if you offer these people the choice like hey like you can come here. Yeah, we have this thing where you have to kind of like there is an area or like a whatever it is when yeah. you first get here. But you know, we want you to be part of the community. We want you to be part of Australia. And what, I think the best way to get someone to love the country is to help build the country. Yeah, I mean, Neil is is this great example of it. The Korean community there is found to be you know injected about forty million dollars into the local economy. 
and also, but a real integration into the local community. Members of the council are expected to know a bit of Karen and speak speak mm-hmm. it that way. And there are you know cultural festivals where they show off parts of their their culture. They're truly integrated and a you know beneficial part of the society. And I've talked to Ames, which is sort of the Victorian resettlement service, and they say it's a long process. You need champions in those towns saying we want this to happen. You need the jobs there for people to arrive and make it happen. And you and you do need a certain number of people. You know, one family from. You know, a certain background isn't going to move to fucking right to butt fuck nowhere no. by themselves and have a great old time. And you, you should know, you, not expect them to. No, that would be insane. <laughs> but you know, it you know, yeah, it's tricky and it takes a long time. Yeah. But we have resettlement services in place. We have the capacity to do it. We have a moral obligation to do it. Um, we have a history of doing it very well. Um, and it's it's just a good news story. And there are people who want to want to do it. I mean, that's that's the thing about putting the show together. It's been this bizarre mix of like the worst elements of human nature and humanity, just just abhorrent political cowardice and um, cruelty, mixed with the best of humanity, the incredible amount of um, uh, charity and uh, humbling decency exhibited by people who are advocates and the refugees themselves, people seeking asylum who have come and flourished against all the odds in society to become citizens who are studying, you know, law and and um, business and who want to make you know want to be the best Australians they can be. Uh, it's this sort of emotional roller coaster of like the best and the worst stories that are out there so uh tell me about the process of putting together the show because you've touched on a couple of things there you've talked to people and done various things so what did you like how did you actually put together the show where do your ideas come from (laughs) (laughs) do you get nervous when you go on stage uh it was a lot of a lot of reading initially a lot of like you know there's a lot of lot of books out there obviously a lot of, you know it's been going along for a long time i um there's this great book called across the seas which is class newman's history of australia's treatment of refugees from you know federation right up to, to the 70s um dark victory by david Marr and, and marion wilkinson about um about tampa was was extremely helpful then a whole bunch of articles and political and quarterly essays and, and all that kind of thing uh Visiting, you know, I went, I went out to visit in, in Melbourne at the the, the Melbourne uh, Immigration Transit Accommodation and meeting people that I wanted, you know, that very kindly let me share their, their stories in the show. Um, and, and yeah, interviews with people from Ames and people at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and Peter Reef and... Uh, and um, and a lot of just talking through with, with Scott, my director, and other people. And it's... You, you know, you can read all those facts and statistics and think about, you know, different ways of going about doing things, the practical outcomes of it. But it was also just a mind shift of trying to think about it in a different way and question my claim to this land, our mm-hmm. claim to this land, which is tenuous at best, if you're if you're a white Australian or no, a European said. I don't know. Ter- terra nullius. <laughs> uh... And then just fuck off. Just imagine there's no countries, as John Lennon told us. Forget all about borders. Well, firstly, the terra nullius stuff. thing. Like, because uh, the thing that people, like, I mean, this is an oversimplification, but the thing that people don't realize is basically back then there were some international laws, right? right? So you kind of had three choices. Your first choice was if you got to a land and there was nobody there, you were allowed to claim it, right? right? Second choice was if you got to a land and there were some people there, you could rent or lease the land. You could make an arrangement with the indigenous people to right. rent or lease some of the land. Yeah. Or the third thing was if there were people there, you could declare war. You right. could have a conflict and you could best the people. And by international law, you then had a responsibility once you'd won 
the war yeah. to make a place for the indigenous people and have like that. And they were the three choices. Yeah. Right. And, but England did not do that. No. England uh, pretended it was the first one <laughs> when it was really the second one. What they should have been doing was making a great. I see and fauna here to me. That's all I'm seeing. I, I mean, see you talk about the idea of leasing a house and that joke that you yeah. had. It's more like, no, no, no. Someone was living in the house and we just moved in. Yeah. And we're like, oh, don't worry about that. That's Terry. No, he's, no he doesn't get to vote on house decisions. Don't no. worry about it. I mean, he was the original owner, <laughs> but now he just lives here and we're eventually going to marginalise him. Look, we've got some booze that will sort it out. Here's yeah. some blankets, yeah. some diseases you haven't had before. <laughs> Good luck, Terry. And it's um, you know what's amazing is is the the how much those two things are intertwined right. and the compassion and empathy that uh, people who have arrived here as refugees have for the indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, that that connection, that bond uh, that I see is extraordinary. That appreciation for um, for the struggle of indigenous people well, here. Well, it's almost like at the heart of it, which in some ways is kind of honest, at least if people are, if this is what they're really thinking. Yeah. If people are really thinking, what if these people who came here on a boat yeah. do to us what we did right. to the people who yeah. were here? Yeah. I mean, that's a legitimate fear. Yeah. Because if they treat us like we treated them, <laughs> I mean, maybe we should stop the boats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but these people don't have muskets and they don't have the fucking right. crown behind them. No, they, of course. They, yeah, it's... And it's just, it's the ultimate privilege check. I mean, that's, again, a selfish reason. Well, not a selfish reason, but a selfish um, upside to this researching this thing. Mm. It's like, honestly, any problem in my life is pretty solved pretty quickly with a change of perspective and say, hey, I'm not in detention. I'm not like my friend Morty, who's been right. in detention since 2011. Uh, you know, a Tamil guy escaping persecution who because he his brother had some vague connection to some offshoot version of the Tamil Tigers has a blip on his ASIO record and now is recognised, you know, is like basically is clearly a refugee but can't be let out, so he's just sort of in this fucking legal limbo for years and is clearly a lovely man who would be an asset to the community. You know, I'm not him and I'm not on Nauru and I'm not on Manus Island and, you know, it's this extraordinary like what the fuck am I complaining about in my life that I, you know, didn't, get that TV gig or <laughs> the show last night was mediocre. You know, like this is just every day we should be like, we are extremely lucky. This is the best possible scenario for us. I mean, you, That's a good perspective for you, but it'd be a bit rich if you explained that to the audience at the end. <laughs> Look, I know you didn't have a great time, but at least you're not on Nauru. So thanks very much. Good night. I'm, I'm Tom Drop Miller. the mic. <laughs> Fuck. That would be great. No. Um, we should finish up because, uh, you know, I don't want to wear you out. We've both got shows tonight. But I um, uh, let, let's uh, – this is going to come out on Wednesday of next week. Oh, so cool. let's talk about, like, your Melbourne date. Like, sure. what, let, let's uh, – so when are you doing your regular show? When are you doing uh, Boundless Plains? My show, The World Keeps Happening, is on um, – starts on Thursday tomorrow, Thursday, March twenty. 20- Fourth, mm-hmm. and goes for the whole festival except for Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh, that's in the town hall in the supper room. So Tuesdays and Thursdays through Sundays at eight fifteen, seven fifteen on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And the balance plans to share. There are only eleven shows happening at the, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. That's Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays. Uh, Saturdays and Sundays at the Trades Hall, Mondays night at the supper room in the town hall. Okay, he's got two shows on. You, you can you can Google. <laughs> Come on, people. Uh, so where do people find your information? Like, you know, what are you on Twitter? Tom C. Ballard on Twitter? At Tom C. Ballard, yep. 
but best place for, for all the dates and stuff is tomballard.com.au. Okay. Um, before we go, uh, I always like to ask, and I, we've kind of touched on this anyway, but, uh, you know, you've mentioned the fact that you're not religious, that sort of thing. Uh, do you think when we die, we just die? Yeah, I do. And I do you think about that at all? Oh, every day. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. In and it and it is a um, it is terrifying, and it is impossible to imagine. And I think that's that's maybe perhaps the most terrifying thing. Uh-huh. Um, Tim Minchin wrote a great blog about it once. He was like ex- trying to explain death to his son. And he sort of said, "We just we stop, we stop." But I think, in a sense, we live on through the memories and stories and impacts that we have, you know, on our lives. And no, you know, technically they can't prove consciousness lives in the brain, mm-hmm. okay? And that's a big uh, metaphysical debate and, you know, neuropsychologists can can go back and forth about that and stuff. But if your brain is damaged, your capacity to function changes. Mm-hmm. And I think all the things that we associate with who a human is, is going on in the brain. So when the brain stops firing neurons, all those things stop. And there is no soul or greater significance moving on anywhere. You've you've had your time, and it's extraordinary that you had your time. It's all the things that had to happen to allow you to be alive is just you know the possibilities are infinite. And the idea that you know people live their lives and think, oh, there must be more than this. I think you know as Richard Dawkins says, it's like, what more do you want? What more do you want? Like, look at the world and the universe and all the incredible things that happen. Um, you know, heaven is a place on earth. Will <laughs> <laughs> at last, at last, at last, somebody has said it. That's at all last. I've ever been looking That's for. That's all you wanted. Yeah, like you know, sometimes <laughs> I even say to people, "Ooh, baby, do you know what it's worth?" And never, I've nothing. never got oh, it. Come on. Yeah, it's the worst. Yeah. Uh, well, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, mate. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, um, Will. I will plug my gigs in an intro at the start. Excellent. So, <laughs> uh, Tom, I appreciate it, mate. And uh, make sure you go and uh, check out Tom's shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And, of course, support all the guests that I've had on my various podcasts. I have a couple of other podcasts. Uh, oh, mention your podcast, Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, it's called. Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, yes. And it's it's just really fantastic. Like, I really recommend – I haven't listened to the Peter Reith one because he is one of those people that I just hate so much that <laughs> I just – I think it's the only one that I haven't listened to out of all of them. But, well, uh, there's no redeeming – like, if you're like, oh, I hate Peter Reith, then yeah. I listen. It actually, is that okay, guy? No. I mean, well, the good news is – Maybe now I will listen to it because yep. the reason I didn't listen is I don't want to n- think he's a good guy. Yeah, like I hate him so much and he's done so many terrible things that right. the fact that he would like some stage be like, oh yeah, well he's not a bad. <laughs> I'm like yeah, but he like you know I always have that Batman thing with those people. It's not you know it's not who you are inside. It's what you do that defines sure, you. Yes, and yeah, and he's done a lot of terrible things. I'd hate to. You know, I mean, because that's the thing. Like, I mean, you know, Hitler, if I met him outside, you know, what he really... I mean, he was a vegetarian. He was an artist. We have the same haircut. (laughs) Like, I mean, I feel like we both like big black boots. I just feel like we'd have some other things in common. (laughs) And then I'd suddenly be like, you know, Hitler, I know. Just don't get him onto the Jews. (laughs) Just, we can invite him. Just don't bring it up. Come on, guys. Name drop. I was hanging out with Daddy Boy, who's a huge fan of Rich Hall. He was saying one of the best Rich Hall jokes ever is like, uh, so uh, I was reading that uh, Hitler has really bad halitosis, really bad, bad breath. 
Tell you what, the more I hear about this guy. <laughs> uh, speaking of the genius rich hall, I did uh, Eddie F's podcast Talking Shit Live with uh, Arj Barker and Rich Hall in Adelaide, and that's up on Eddie's podcast, so you can check that out as well if you would like. All right, we're done. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Will. I gotta know where you stay forever